0: Hey everybody, this week we have Yoan Grillo on the show, a cartel investigative reporter. He reports on the Sinaloa cartel. We cover all kinds of cartel stuff in this one to include the exchange that just went down between the Sinaloa cartel and El Chapo's son. The Mexican government gave up El Chapo's son to the Sinaloa cartel because the Sinaloa cartel overpowered the mexican government we talk all about it hey guys thank you all for being here i love you all if you haven't noticed last week we hit one million subscribers and i just want to say thank you to all of you that means the world to us. i never thought i would have a million people that want to watch the content i'm producing but we do so thank you and If you're feeling generous, I could always use a uh, iTunes and Spotify review. So if you don't mind, head over to iTunes and Spotify, leave us a review. We'd really appreciate it. And for that exclusive content, sign up for the Vigilance Elite Sean Ryan Show newsletter. You won't be disappointed. All right, love you. Let's get to the show. One last thing I forgot to say, please like, comment, subscribe. And if you get anything out of these shows, please share it. With your friends, let's make this thing go viral. Yoan Grillo, welcome to the show, man. Good to be here, Sean. Been tracking you for a long time. It's really, really, it's just awesome to have you sitting across from me. And uh, with all this stuff going on in Mexico right now, we have a ton to cover. So, award-winning investigative journalist, you've produced, directed, several documentaries, docuseries, you're an author, very well established in the cartel Mexico space, and uh, yeah, it's just an honor to have you here, so I'm super excited. Thanks much for the invite, yeah, great to talk. My pleasure. Uh, Everybody starts off with a gift, and I'm out of boxes, so those are the best gummy bears in the world. Vigilance League gummy bears, and uh, they don't they don't even have any THC in it, believe it or not. Okay. <laughs> but, so I can take these on the plane when you, I fly back to Mexico? You can take those on the plane yeah. when you go back to Mexico, and you won't have to worry about getting arrested. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, yeah. But, um, man, tons of stuff going on in Mexico right now. So if you don't mind, I'm just going to get the audience up to date on some of the stuff that's going on, and then uh, I figure this is a great place to start. So... At 0400 hours on January 5th, 35 miles north of the capital near a rural fishing community called Jesus Maria, security forces claim they had spotted a convoy of around 25 cartel vehicles in which their target, AKA El Raton, does that mean the rat? The mouse. The mouse was believed to be traveling. Defense Secretary Luis Crencioso Sandoval said cartel gunmen opened fire on troops with half a dozen 50-gallon machine gun trucks. The Army responded with "UH UH-60 gunships on the cartel convoy. The cartel opened fire, forcing two aircraft to land with significant damage, but somehow Guzman was captured. The cartel then closed in on Culacan International Airport to prevent his transport to Mexico City and a civilian airliner was struck by gunfire, but nobody was hurt. In all, 10 military personnel, 19 cartel members were killed in the initial clash. The running shootouts also killed one Kulacan policeman and wounded 17 police officers and 35 military personnel. You know... So then let's fast forward a minute. And this is, I want to ask you your opinion on this. On January 9th, President Joe Biden arrives in Mexico ahead of bilateral meetings with Mex- Mexican President Andreas Manuel Lopez Obrador and Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, as well as a joint gathering of the three North American leaders, dubbed the Three Amigos Summit, the first time Mexico has hosted a U.S. president since 2014. What strikes me a little odd about this is in 2019, they captured El Raton again, and After hundreds of, arc, of cartel henchmen overwhelmed security corpses in Kula Khan, they released him. <laughs> so do you think, wh- one, why would they go after the guy again, knowing that the Sinaloa cartel is obviously going to show some type of military force and take action, knowing what they did last time, which is just release him back to the Sinaloa cartel. That's exactly what they did this time again, what three years? Three years later, do you think that was a distraction by chance for the for the Three Amigos summit that just happened down there with Biden, Trudeau, and the Prime Minister of uh, Mexico?
1: Yeah, so it's been a lot to unpack, and it's, it's a big story in in a whole bunch of ways. So in 2019, you had this military anti narcotics unit go for a bit son of El Chapo, on one of four brothers. Four of the sons of El Chapo, he's got a whole bunch of kids, but there's four sons known as Los Chapitos who run a faction of this in the Sinaloa cartel, which is very big, very effective in trafficking fentanyl uh, to the United States, crystal meth, you know, big players. So in 2019, you have, based on a US extradition order, a US indictment from New York, you have a military... Antinikodex unit goes in there into a luxury house in the city of Culiacan, and they make the arrest. Then around, or they go in there around midday. Now at that point, you start to have uh, these uh, reactions from the sicarios, the hitmen of the Sinaloa cartel of the brothers, and the military unit is pinned down in the house. So then you get it, it escalates, and you get seven hundred cartel gunmen against about 350 soldiers wow and they they also they 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 go into the barracks where the military families are start where the wives and children are and they're like running and they're actually taking fire they start picking up some officers saying we're going to kill them uh they're, they're you know people are civilians are like you know like terrified people are stuck inside schools where they went to pick up their kids they're like sheltered in the schools while this stuff's taking place So then the government at 6 p.m. gave the order to release Obidio Guzmán under pressure. Now, it was interesting that, you know, he took a lot of, obviously a lot of flack for that. Uh, People always cited this as the reason why he's weak or corrupt, or both, President López Obrador. Um, In one personal meeting with him, I, I, I heard about, from a witness there, he said, the thing that he most regretted was most, Kind of annoyed about in his presidency was in fact releasing Obedigo's man on that day. So I see this as being like an attempt to kill the demons of what happened in 2019. It's known in Mexico as El Culicanazo, this whole event. So this time it was a much more sleekly planned military operation. They didn't get him in Culiacán. they got him in this village of Jesus Maria. Now, what you read out was the government's official version. Okay. But there's definitely holes in that.
0: If you're 21 years or older and use nicotine or tobacco, I want to tell you about Black Buffalo and how it's changing America for millions of consumers. Those of you that know who I am know that I spent a career in the SEAL teams and its Central Intelligence Agency. The majority of the time in those was conducting operations. And while on those operations, something that we did all the time was chew tobacco, became kind of like a ritual. And I know a lot of you out there who listen to me love that ritual, and I just want you to know I get it. Black Buffalo even has long cut, and their pouches are award-winning for all you guys out there using those white portion things. Black Buffalo has bold flavors and full pouches black buffalo is full of flavor it feels legit when you pack it and most importantly is tobacco leaf and stem free so if you're 21 or older currently use nicotine or tobacco and want to join the black buffalo herd head over to blackbuffalo.com to learn more you can buy their products there and they ship directly to most states or check out their store locator to purchase at thousands of retail locations around the country born in the midwest raised in the south charge ahead with black buffalo warning this product contains nicotine nicotine is an addictive chemical black buffalo products are intended for adults aged 21 and older who are consumers of nicotine or tobacco here's the situation you've got china russia ukraine the border the banks seem to be collapsing plus the chinese just negotiated with iran saudi arabia and brazil to drop the us dollar and most americans including myself feel that we're in a recession right now. But despite all the evidence, I can't tell you what's going to happen for sure. Nobody can. Yet when it comes to your money, you should understand what's at stake. That's why I partnered with Gold Co. to possibly help at times like this. Go to seanlikesgold.com or call 855-936-GOLD to get your free gold and silver kit. The kit shows you how to defend your money with precious metals and how listeners of the show could get up to ten thousand dollars in bonus silver go to seanlikesgold.com or call 855-936-GOLD to get your free gold and silver kit i can't predict the future but i can certainly prepare for it so go to seanlikesgold.com or call 855-936-GOLD now performance may vary consult with your tax attorney or financial professional before making an investment decision
1: It wasn't, it looks like they just kind of ran into this guy, you know, driving in a vehicle. They said that maybe for certain judicial reasons, they didn't have the full judicial clearance for the operation for certain reasons. Might be the the, the why. But they went in there, um, went into this village, Jesus Maria, where he had a house, went in there, took him out in the early hours of the morning, got him on the plane to Mexico City. Now, when the cartel reacted... And they reacted again uh, and started blockading the street. But then the, the military were much more prepared. It wasn't 350 soldiers this time. It was 3,500 soldiers against them. So they, 10 times the amount of soldiers were ready to react to this. Wow. So they outnumbered the cartel Sicarios. That number of dead, 17 cartel Sicarios, cartel hitmen dead, it might be a lot higher, really, because often the cartel would take away the bodies of those who are killed. They don't want them being taken by the military. They take away their own bodies, in many cases. So it could be a lot higher. And they got him on a plane to Mexico City, and then they got him... Now, the timing of the Biden visit, I mean, I don't think this... It's hard to believe it's a coincidence. When Biden goes down there, and Biden is under pressure to ask the president of Mexico, why are we capturing so much fentanyl on the US-Mexico border? Mm -hmm. Why is this happening? So now... You know, President López Obrador can say, well, at least we're fighting these guys. At least, you know, we got this guy, Ogles, man. Um, We lost 10 soldiers in this fight. So he's got an answer. So as soon as, you know, he knows this presidential visit is happening, they're like, make this capture before then. Funnily enough, the village, Jesus Maria, he had a house there. They say that there's the military like looking at this for six months or something, kind of building up this operation. So maybe he was kind of. But funny enough, there's a song called Soy el Ratón. Uh, it was called a narco corrido or drug ballad about this guy, and it mentions the name of the village in the song, and it says that's where he grew up. So it's kind of like as soon as I heard, like when in the, in the morning when I heard like okay, there's military operation in Huesmeria, I was like. I'll be the ogre's man, and ratón. That's from the song. You know, so right away, it was kind of getting ready. Okay, maybe they've caught this guy now. Wow. Do you, um, so you don't think
0: this was necessarily a distraction? You think this was just to get, give Trudeau and Biden an answer, saying, look, this is what we're doing about it. We just did this
1: operation four days before you guys got here. Yeah, I, th- I, th- I, think, it, I think it's like when you sit down, uh, it, if you look historically, this happens. When Mexican presidents, Meet American presidents and drug issue comes up. They're like, Give me something to answer.
0: Okay. Why do you think is 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 a capture kill not is that not something they do in Mexico? I'm just curious why they wouldn't have had a capture kill mission or just a kill mission, knowing what happened, you know, three years prior to this.
1: So during the presidency of Felipe Calderón you saw a lot of kills. The Mexican military will go in there, both the Marines and the military. So you see some of the big drug traffickers there. Now, some of them would be themselves be answering with gunfire. Uh, but there's a guy called Arturo Beltran Leva, very interesting case. Uh, if you want to look up this guy, Arturo Beltran Leva, massive drug trafficker. He was shot dead by Mexican Marines i tell you a crazy story about that. But other, other ones, Nacho Coronel, huge trafficker, Tony Tormenta. And there was big gunfights. There was one gunfight in Tamaulipas State when they took out Tony Tormenta. Six Marines died, 300 grenades thrown in that gun battle. Journalist was killed in the fire. In When Arturo Beltran level was taken down on DEA information. So DA DEA got the information, gave it to the Marines paid apparently $5 million for this information. Where They got the house where it's going to be in Cuenabaca. And Marines went in there, a bunch of gunfire, a a, a baby was killed, civilians were killed in the crossfire. One of the Marines died. And uh, Felipe Calderón, the president, gave him this hero's funeral to the Marine who died. Afterwards, some gunmen went to the wake of the Marine in his hometown and murdered the mother, the sister, and the aunt, like massacred family members in revenge. So you see sometimes these kill missions, what the stakes can be with these kill missions. Um, you saw afterwards, after the Felipe Calderón, you started to see the Peña Nieto administration, you saw more captures, less kills and more more captures so i think i think it was kind of a a a strategy to try and dial it down a bit now you still got 10 soldiers being killed in this Mm -hmm. so uh but it's the rules of engagement in in mexico i think are very unclear and you know you've got a situation where the mexican government is not declaring we've got an armed conflict here we've got like an insurgency or an armed conflict Mm -hmm. for various reasons. You know, they don't, That's not good for tourism. That's not good. I I think cats out of the bag by now, but yeah, yeah. Even so. But like, like if you say, if you say like, I mean, this gets into like, you know, international legal grounds, but if they start saying, we're, we're actually dealing with an insurgency like, um, you know, like Syria or something, um, what rights does that give the people you capture? Does that, you know, what rights does that give like certain, they're a specific arm, you're naming them as a specific, specific armed group. Um, what does that tell you about foreign investment? So the Mexican government plays a game where they're like a bit like, um, because I, you know, I wrote, my, the, the subtitle of my first book was uh, Inside Mexico's Criminal Insurgency. So, and so I, I, you know, I started looking at this, you know, they're acting like a guerrilla group. You know, they're shooting down, um, I mean, it's happened after that, that first book came out, but then they shot down a military helicopter with an RPG-7. Um, They're, you know, putting up 700 gunmen against 350 soldiers. This is acting like an insurgent group, but they're gangsters. You know, it just... just,
0: I understand what you're saying about, you know, they don't want the family members to be killed, but to me there's a very simple solution, and that's use a special operations surgical team to do the hit and then don't hand out any awards, at least publicly. Hmm. And then... They wouldn't know who to go after or or they would I'm sure they would pick somebody, but it wouldn't be you know the
1: operational team that that made the hit so I mean, again, going back to where the where Mexican government stands legally if they if they say declare we've got an insurgency and soldiers have got the right to go and shoot down the enemy because that's what you know you can do in an insurgency, you can say we're fighting a war, we're fighting a military war um but mexican government's not doing that they're saying we've got a problem of gangsters and criminals mm-hmm. so the government can't legally give a, a go in to shoot you know target order to, i mean the soldiers are carrying out a police operation still of arresting a gangster so if you look so again like that's what i mean the, the, this, it's all it's all a mess and so this, this situation is a, is a mess i'm not uh saying they should or shouldn't do this i'm just saying like the kind of legal shit show this is. Okay. That's why they kind of started lying about some of this, oh, we just ran into this guy in a jeep convoy because they hadn't really got the whole judicial clearance for exactly for this whole operation. During the Felipe Calderon administration, some of this stuff looked like they had gone in there just to assassinate these guys. They kind of gone in there, we're going to go in there, we're going to shoot them. All these guys start, you know, as soon as these guys start responding with fire, obviously they can go in there and shoot them. But they can't just... Legally say, we're going to go in there and have an assassination operation of these guys. Now, you know, like, obviously, they're, you know, Mexico's living a hellish cartel problem. Mm-hmm. And, you know, would that make a you know, Are you eventually going to get a government that does that? You know, you eventually get a government says, we're going to just declare these guys as terrorists or insurgents and just take them out? You know, who knows in the future? Do, right, do
0: you think that might happen? Uh, Do you think that they are an insurgency, and not just street gangs?
1: Right. At so, point? I think obviously they're beyond street gangs. Uh, I think, in some ways, we don't have like the the the, the, the 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 clear language to describe them. So, like you know, I said criminal insurgency. I made this comparison in my first book. I used the word gangster warlords. And, 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 you know, analyze this, looking at all these different groups around Latin America. Um, they're, yeah, they're clearly beyond criminals and what we can understand as a criminal problem and clearly more comparable to, like, insurgent groups. But there are differences between Mexico and, say, uh, Al-Qaeda, say, the Islamic State and these kind of things. When you go to these territories that the cartels control, it's not like, say, the Islamic State controls a territory and they're interested in things like uh, changing the schools and having Islamic indoctrination. And they're, like, controlling, really, the, the whole territory. No one can come in and out of that territory. In Mexico, it's different. Even in the most cartel areas, and I've been to the village of Chapo Guzman, I've been to every state in Mexico over the years and been to, you know, the the, the countryside in Michoacán, in Tamaulipas, in the cities, in Juarez, in all these places, over, and seen them involved over the last 20 years. In the places, even the most cartel places, they still allow the government to operate and do certain things. They still allow school teachers to come in. I don't care what the school teachers are teaching. You know, they're not interested in like, indoctrinating people with some new ideology, like the Islamic State or the Shining Path in Peru, which is a communist, you know, Marxist insurgency there. Um, they want the government to provide electricity, they want the government to send garbage trucks to collect garbage. But they want to control certain aspects of that territory. So they control security and control the territory in that sense. Now you get what's called halcones or like lookouts. Some areas they're really obvious, like when you go to that area of Chapel Guzman's village, you drive in and you see these guys there, give them a nod this guy there with a the gun and a radio. You know, give him, give him a nod, you know, you know that. These guys are ri- riding around. <laughs> you know, funny story, I was riding around one of the, this is more in the Maya Zambada territory in the south of Culiacan. I spent a lot of time there the last uh, year filming a documentary series. And one time I was stuck in the mud, in a car there, I was like, oh, stuck in the mud. This kind of minivan Drives up behind me. I think, oh, someone can help me out. I look in. Like, it's a bunch of guys with AK-47s, camo gear, a bunch of these cigarios. And I was like, okay. and I'm like, oh, sorry, I'm in your way. And I was like, we'll, we'll drive past. The guy drives to drive past, and they get stuck as well. Because, like, you know, the, the vehicles are too tightly stuck together. And I'm like, like kind of, you know, laughing, trying to, trying to, you know, play this one out. And the guy, the guy there's kind of laughing as well, the head of this these little crew of Sicari, about 23 years old. Sicari's like 18, 19. <clears throat> and then he said, and I said, like, I'm from England, I'm you know, filming a documentary here, it's a, it's a music theme, about the, the local drug ballads. The guy gets on his radio, calls a pickup truck and gets gets me pulled out of the mud. And it shows a bit, it's the way they operate in these areas. They're kind of like the local authority, the local police in these areas, and they're not necessarily... Going to mess with everybody, um, but they're kind of parallel. So they're like they'll they'll have, parallel to to the police forces and the local mayor. They'll have the police forces on their payroll. Often, basically, be ordering the local police around. Have the local mayor on their payroll. Or the local mayor these days can be a, basically a cartel member. Um, so they have control of these areas, but you know, entwined with the government. Um, and it's not as simple as you know, like you know, you know, they, they are, you know, some ways. And you see the, you know, these times when they, when they react to a government operation, and they'll bring out seven hundred government to confront the military. Um, But it, it, it's a complicated, weird situation. That it's like it's a weird twenty first century uh, form of of hybrid armed conflict, which is quite different from many things we've seen before. Interesting. So how how much?
0: How much of the federal government does the cartel control? They, it sounds like they have a really good handle on local government. Yeah. You know, and, and it sounds like, you know, maybe they don't overtly control everything, but it sounds like they're just allowing things to happen. Like they allow school to have session, they allow people to come in, you know, uh, to work these other government jobs, but they shut down all the anything that could possibly get in their way?
1: Yeah, so that's a very good question. And and again, it gets to a a weird, complicated uh, level of corruption you have there and the way that the cartel power interact with the government in the state of Mexico. So you see these cartels, which are are kind of changing and breaking up and moving all the time, um, but you also have corrupt officials and like corrupt generals who are like, who can be working for the cartel or they can be making their own money and kind of in a way they're, they're kind of, so you get a struggle between them trying to operate and shake down the cartels for money Okay. as well. Now, if you go back to the Felipe Calderon administration, which was very confrontational with drug cartels, the public security secretary, so the kind of top security official, one of the top security officials in the country, who was, you know, in some ways the public face, the kind of or the kind of architect of the of the, anti, of the drug war. He is going to be in trial in the United States on drug trafficking charges. Working with a cartel. So from that point of view, you got very high up. Now presidents themselves, there's accusations um, of presidents themselves. Um, going back to the nineties, the president's brother, Raúl Salinas, accused of running the cartel operations. So from that point, you got, you got high up. Now, nowadays, though, you can see, well, you know, this is an accusation, particularly after 2019, well, this president, you know, why did he order the release of this drug cartel guy? Is that the federal government captured? But then they capture him. At the same time, there's still, and getting to the fentanyl, you know, I went to, I went to the, uh, the port of Manzanillo which is the biggest Pacific port, biggest port in Mexico. And it's the port which sits on the Pacific Ocean where the chemicals come in from China. They are coming in from China. From China and from India, with the Chinese chemists are now also running labs in India as well. What are they doing in India? I mean, because you know, they're, they're, it's a way that they're, they're the same operations, the same groups can just go and set up a lab in India and it's less controlled in India than China. Although... The Chinese government isn't, cra- isn't properly cracking down on this stuff. But anyway, talking about this port, so I went to this port to look at this, talk to people who work in the port, people who import stuff, export stuff. Now, that port is now run by the Mexican Marines. Supposedly less corrupt. But the chemicals are still coming through there. And there's bribes taking place. So again, so, that, I mean, you know, you've got a very questionable... To be polite, very questionable federal apparatus as well, but there's also been this power struggle in Mexico for some years. I think between the, like people trying to create a federal government that's above the cartels and the cartels literally kind of trying, you know, literally bossing around federal officials. And you see, I mean, you see federal officials assassinated. I remember when the the same guy Beltran Lavor, they ordered. After the, the guy's brother was taken, was arrested, a guy called Elmo chomo was arrested and, and is now in prison in the United States here, the acting head of the federal police was assassinated in his house in Mexico City, in his home. But was he assassinated for being an honest cop or assassinated because he broke a deal that he'd taken money from this drug cartel? And then was like, you know, you, you went back on this deal that's often the kind of thing, you know. You took some money from us and then you went back on this deal. So we took you out. Damn. Did he, do you know that for a fact with this guy? Uh, uh, this, it looks very likely, but you, in terms of that, like, that's a common thing you see by cartels, into, like have the, the, these banners out. Mm-hmm. And a common thing they'll say is like they'll have a, an official accused and they'll say, You took money from us, you know, you took money and you, and you went back on this deal that's like a common complaint an argument they have in those banners. Man, I don't see
0: how they're going to get a handle on this. They're so intertwined with every piece of government in Mexico. I mean is there anything that's that's that they're not tapped into? Is there any anything are they are they tapped into the president, you see?
1: Are they tapped into the elections? Are they? So I mean, like, I mean, Mexico's a big and uh, complicated country. So it's a country still of like uh, you know trillion dollar economy, one hundred thirty million people, thirty two states. So you still find states that are not cartel controlled. You know, I live in Mexico City, and in Mexico City does not have cartel control in the same way. The Sinaloa has, or the you know Juarez has, or the Tijuana has. In Mexico City, um, you have one of the biggest police forces in Latin America. Uh, more than you know, uh, more than a hundred thousand officers live in Mexico City Police Force. Okay. Um, they have this huge amount of cameras on the street now. There's the guy who's running the Mexico City Police Department. Who survived an attack by the Jalisco New Generation Cartel, Garcia or Omar Garcia Hafucho, and 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 they you know I've been been covering and following some of the stuff there, and I went to where there was a, there was a, some gangsters in in a place called Tepito, La Unión de Tepito. and I went down there and, and and checked out, and they had yeah very constant kind of police operations there. You know, I don't know you know totally are these guys totally honest, but like. They are hitting certain mobs hard. But interestingly, the murder rate in Mexico City halved between 2018 and 2022. And Mexico City, which was called the CDMX part of Mexico City, um, which is the kind of federal district, the kind of inner part, now has a lower murder rate than many US cities, and even Portland, Oregon. You had mentioned that last night. Yeah, yeah. Port of Oregon, because it had a sudden increase in murders in Port of Oregon. Yeah. So Mexico City, and, and like you tell me, what the, well, actually, it's kind of crazy. Like, Port of Oregon, you think it's got to be real safe. But definitely, I mean, quite substantially lower than some US cities, like Houston and Dallas and some of these US cities. Not as low as New York, which is fairly low. So you get some things, we think, okay, well, that's something's working there in Mexico City, at least, Whatever's exactly is going on. And cartels in Mexico City are there, You know, you you get arrested these cartel operatives in Mexico City. They don't operate and control the city in the same way that they control Sinaloa or Tamaulipas or Juarez. In Mexico City, they're kind of there and they're making deals and moving around, but they're not controlling the neighborhoods. So Mexico City is mixed. You've got some states um, like Yucatan, the state of Yucatan has a murder rate which is comparable to... European countries. Okay, it's a fairly peaceful area. So you got this, but then you then you have got Zacatecas right now, which is a full-on war in Zacatecas between the Jalisco New Generation Cartel and the Sinaloa Cartel, and it's just That's full-on crazy stuff. Um, so you got this weird thing. I was down in uh, another one of the other uh, points of the confrontations, the kind of down confrontations, is the border of Michoacan and Jalisco. There's a big fight there between the Jalisco New Generation cartel, very violent organization, and a group of local gangsters known as Cartels United, called themselves. One of the groups there called Los Viagras. Okay. Viagras. Kind of, cra- and that's crazy. That looks more like re- kind of weird hybrid warfare. Uh, and I went down there and they laid a bunch of landmines, kind of makeshift landmines. And they, they'd, they'd hit one military... Um carrier there like a Jeep and they'd hit some farmers and killed the farmers and stuff. They'd laid they'd apparently the military had deactivated more than 250 landmines there. Where are they getting this?
0: Where are they getting the landmines? Where are they getting the RPGs?
1: Yeah, so, so different different sources. So in terms of the weaponry, um a lot of the grenades and the RPG sevens come from Central America. Now they come from military stockpiles in Central America the American government gave the El Salvadoran government a lot of grenades back in the 80s, fighting the, the wars then against some guerrillas, left-wing guerrillas, communist guerrillas in, in, uh, in, in El Salvador. There was huge stockpiles of grenades, and they started leaking and going to these criminal black markets. In Honduras, you had the, a bunch of these RPG-7s, rocket-propelled grenade launchers, stolen from uh the honduran military now the regular ak-47s or ar-15s they're buying in the united states and 50 cals they generally buy in those an the amount they'll pay what they are paying jet the biggest method is through straw buyers through paying people with clean records to buy the guns and they'll pay things like fifty dollars for pistols to straw buyers, hundred dollars for AK-47s or AR-15s, and $500 for the 50 cals. And that's a lot of the rates they'll pay here for buying them here, and, and, and that's where the, the, the biggest amount of those guns are coming down. Do
0: the, Do you think these people that are buying them, the guns, know where they're going? I think some of them do,
1: yeah. I think do some you? of them do. I think, uh, I mean, some of them are, are, are like, I mean, they're cartel affiliates. You look at some of these cases. The case of Fast and Furious is obviously an interesting one. Um, which I think a lot of people will be aware of, the case of Fast and Furious, uh, going back to, from 2009 to 2011, when there was cartel operatives buying, they bought more than 2,000 guns in Arizona, and the ATF was watching them and not acting. Mm-hmm. Um, what's interesting, that case is now very, very documented, so you've got a lot of files on that. Uh, and I looked at that, I talked to one of the... Uh, uh, confidential informants, a gun seller in the pre-operation called wide receiver. A uh, guy from Arizona. Um was, was he before they did the Fast and Furious and and looked heavily at that case. Um which is yeah which is a mess. I interviewed Philippe the former president of Mexico, Felipe Calderon specifically about that case as well. Uh, and and that's you know it's uh you know a, you know a very messy case which but uh but you look at that you look at that you you know you had cartel operatives they knew I mean, yeah. One guy went around different gun shops and spent half a million dollars on different guns for the cartels. He, he, he knew what to do. Now, there's some cases that people, you know, they can get acquire guns in many places across the country. There was a case of a guy who was an Iraq war veteran who bought 10 AK-47s for the Sectors Cartel in uh, before, and one of those guns was used in. By the mob who shot and killed an American agent. Oh, man. In Mexico. Jaime Zapata. It was, they bought 10, and they were Romanian AK 47s. I went to the factory, uh, Cugia factory in Romania, where they were made to trace this this whole process there. Uh, But they went into a pawn shop, and he was paid $600 for the 10 guns. So, 600 bucks. Um, One of those guns was used to kill an American agent for ICE. Jaime Zapata, who was shot dead in 2011, and his uh, colleague, his partner there, uh, Victor Avila, survived that shooting. He's now a very active speaker about these issues. uh, And about war issues. Yeah, Victor Avila, yeah.
0: Did anything happen to the war vet that bought the AKs?
1: Probation. Probation, that's it? Probation, yeah. Because the crime of that was lying on the form. Now, if you look at some of the the interesting politics around this stuff, if you were to declare cartels terrorist groups, which some people want to do in the United States, and there's an argument for this, but if you were to declare the cartels terrorist groups, that crime would have gone from lying on the form to acquiring material for a terrorist organization. That could have gone from probation to 25 years. But... Obviously, there's certain people in the in the gun industry that don't want that as well. Because then, if you run a gun store and you sell a gun store, you sell a gun to a straw purchaser, you know, could you suddenly be caught up in that in that thing as well? The other thing about declaring cartels as terrorist groups, and there's you know there's certainly an argument for this you know, for these tactics they're using to declare them as terrorist organisations. Um, was if then if the people are applying for asylum in the United States and saying I'm fleeing this cartel, they threaten me, and then they're declared by the U.S. government as terrorist organization, that would increase their case in going to court in the United States. That makes a lot of sense. Do you but think then they could hit them very hard in certain ways, you know, to them terrorist groups?
0: Yeah. What do you think they should do? Do you think they should label them a
1: terrorist group? Uh um, like in, in the United States, um, you know, I've been covering this stuff for 21 years uh, or 22 years. I've been in Mexico now, uh, and I used to have some kind of easy answers for this stuff and say this, this is this is what we do, three things. Um, right now, I don't see, see easy solutions to this. Uh, I, I would say I, I don't know if, if if labeling. I mean, I there's different aspects. If you, if you label them terrorist, if, if, the, if the United States labeled these groups terrorist organizations, but still if the United States, you know, could go in there with, with drone strikes or, you know, military raids, uh, it's still not going to solve this because these groups are so powerful and so many people. So you've basically got, there's this kind of three things that I look at, of, 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 you know, whether they do or not, you know, and I'm, I'm not saying it's a, it's an outrageous thing to do to neighbor them as terrorist groups, but there's three things um, that I look at as, as, as kind of a solution to this, or, as kind of long term. So, one of them is uh, you have to build up some law enforcement which works in Mexico.
0: This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. And at times, we keep carrying them around rather than processing them and letting them go. Keeping everything bottled up can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe place to get things off your chest. Therapy from BetterHelp is helpful for learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. It empowers you to be the best version of yourself. It isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. It's for everyone. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com Sean today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot Sean. Fast forward to the end of 2024. Think of your goals. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? If you want to learn a new language you absolutely should get Babbel. Babbel's quick 10 minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations. Now that my business is expanding, being fluent in multiple languages more important than ever. Babbel's courses are convenient and work with my busy schedule. Here's a special. Limited time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com SRS. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com SRS. Spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com SRS. Rules and restrictions may apply. Visit babbel.com for terms
1: and details. Uh, now... When you're dealing with cartels that are this heavily armed, it's extremely hard. But it's got to be. I mean, I don't see it any other way. You've got to have law enforcement bodies and, and, like, you know, like trying to push this back. And some of this is like what like we're doing in Mexico City. Trying to say we've got to lower the high murder rate in these areas. We can't allow armed groups to operate. We can't allow complacent impunity. So some it's about building some body of law enforcement. Now they have to maybe you know like say, well, we've got to accept that we're dealing with. Heavily armed groups, and you've got to have a certain rule of engagement for that. But you need some law enforcement in Mexico. The second thing, and I, you know, I believe this does really work. I spent a lot of time interviewing cartel members Mm -hmm. over the last twenty-two years. A lot of the hitmen, some of the higher ups. If you look at the hitmen, then they are from recruited into the cartels when they're about twelve years old. There's different stores in there. You you find a bunch of different stores. Uh, But these are kind of typical stores. You have some of these neighborhoods, say, in Juarez, Tamaulipas. The kids will be on the block, and the cartels will approach them and recruit them 12 years old, 13 years old, and start off like, okay, you're gonna be a lookout for us. And we're gonna pay you 30 bucks a week. and we're gonna give you a radio. Uh, or, a, or a cell phone and you're going to send a message every time whatever comes past. And you, hear, you hear these guys, Halcones, you hear these guys signal where they're talking. One time I was with, with, the, with the police in Monterrey and we were listening in to the Halcones and they were talking about us. We were listening in to them spying on us. <laughs> yeah. You've know, you, you you've done plenty of that stuff. But anyway, so these kids, uh, the, the 12 years old, they get recruited as lookouts, start taking money from the cartel and they start getting trained to become hitmen. Some of them will carry out murders, 14, 15 years old. There was one guy who was a police officer who was also working with, with cartels. And he was describing how he would get the kids to cut up the bodies to start making them you know, lose their fear, become brutal. Interviewed another guy for the Barrio Azteca, which is a faction of the, of the Juarez cartel who described how he looked for the kids, he would want to find kids who are like, got some hate in their heart. I don't want kids who are like, got nice families. It's kind of the opposite of the, you know, oh, I'm not sure exactly military recruitment, but like, these guys are, are like looking, how do we, good, they need constant recruitment. We want to find guys who are messed up, and you interview some of these, Scarios, you know, one guy I talked to who was abandoned as a kid. His parents um, you know left him with nothing, and he was like, I got hate for the world. So like for me the cartel gives me something and, I, and I, don't, I, I, wanna, I wanna hurt other people, I don't care. I want something for myself. But then you get kids in like carrying out multiple murders. So now once you get somebody who's you know, 18, they carry out multiple murders, they cut up bodies, they've done decapitations, they, they, you can't do much for that. But you do need help and strategies to reach some of these kids before they get recruited by the cartel. Very specific focused programs. Hmm. I mean, not just throwing money out there, but like very specific focus in the neighborhoods where the kids are being recruited. And, you know, one guy I was talking to is like, yeah, we know on the block who are the kids who are going to be recruited by the cartel. We know who the 10 kids are. You know, it's they, just waiting for that to happen. Why is the government doing nothing to try and do that? So that's another thing. I mean, it's kind of crime prevention or like changing this. So you're, you're talking about implementing some kind of
0: an educational service for for kids in these... I think in these in the states territories
1: yeah, I mean more focused. I mean it's it's like about like say Look very strategically. Where's the high recruitment for these cartels? And then who specifically at the kids and then like saying talking to the parents You know your kids gonna get it's gonna be in a cartel with the next You know, we can offer something keep them in school like um, Offer something to try and like improve learn a trade learn something to have a living thinking, you know, your kid's going to be dead could well be dead I mean
0: how, how, how many of these kids have parents who are generational cartel members though this isn't a new problem yeah yeah I mean, that, you've that, been down there for 22 yeah. years if somebody got recruited at 12 they could have they you know
1: I mean it's the this, this sad thing like um, well, remember I was covering the stuff in 2004 when it kind of, kind of started escalating turf war there and the kids there were not even born who are now hitmen. There, there's a there's a, grave, there's a graveyard in Sinaloa called the Omaya Cemetery. Amazing. If you ever get a chance to go down there, it's one of the most surreal, crazy graveyards in the world. Massive mausoleums for these big traffickers. But there's loads of graves of hitmen. And you see loads of graves of kids, 18, 19, 20, 21. And, you know, you see... Um, some of them are young fathers and you'll see like on like Father's Day, I mean, when I was on their father's day one time all these big balloons and blankets and everything like because but also like uh, Sometimes the mothers will go down there and they are photographs and you know How many of these kids are gonna die that young? I mean think about it in Mexico? there has been over the last 10 years more than 300,000 bodies Like you know, and it's going go on 20 years. It's you know half a million It's like you know, there's a lot of you know these people are gonna die so so, how can you reach and try and stop, say, like the new generation? I mean, yeah, you say, like, some of them are, are, are like my generation cartel members, but then you talk to some of the, even the cartel members. One of the re- one things that I approach when I, when I meet a lot of these guys and you give a picture, you and know, I want to talk to you. And I often say, well, like, you know, and this is, you know, partly journalistic spiel, or you're trying to meet somebody and you want to get, talk to them. But it's just, you know, I say this from my heart. You know, I know you, you don't necessarily want this for your kids. You don't want your kids to live a life you liked. You know, you have the kind of glamour of, of like seeing like narcos TV series and beautiful women and these big mansions, but most of them are not living like that. You know, that's, you know, the bosses. Mm-hmm. But most of them, you know, they're living violent, brutal lives and they're going to be dead or in prison. They're going to be committing murders. You talk to them like, okay, you know, how do you feel about, you know, they, they can, you know, these guys, one guy interviewed him in prison in Ciudad Juarez. In the prison in Ciudad Juarez, where in fact, also, uh, they, they did a raid on it this January as well, and they bust out a bunch of guys and killed 10 guards. One of my craziest prisons in the world. It was in there some years back, and they have they're basically these wings, which are segregated by cartel groups. So they have the Juarez cartel, which has the Barrio Azteca in one part, and they have the Sinaloa cartel, which has these groups called Los Mexicles, and the artist Assassins in our part. And they have this weird evangelical Christian part. Hmm. And I was in there, spent, and, I, and I, the, 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 the time the, the prison director, and he it was, it was open and he let me keep on going back and forth, they? Spend in they? spent time, spend days in this, in this prison. And they have these like weird evangelical ceremonies in the prison. They were like dancing, getting rid of their demons and stuff. It was kind of crazy scenes. And I talked to one guy who was quite a heavy cartel guy, um, who'd been ahead of assassins and, 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 and pretty brutal stuff. And I was there, it was me and a cameraman, we were in there in the cell, and we started talking to him. And he started kind of going on this full on you know, confession how he decapitated people while they're still alive and stuff, and all this kind of stuff. And uh, we were there, and, and the prison guy was there, and he said to the guy, You know, you're saying this on camera. You know, what are the implications? They can see your face here. And I like, know oh, you can't show my face. Ah, oh, okay, we'll, we'll black out, and he goes, oh, my voice is also, like, people will people know my voice because I've done a lot of phone phone calls and people are gonna hear my voice and stuff, phone calls threatening people and stuff. And then we said, like, we're, you know, we're not gonna show the video by using material, the written material of what he said. But it's it's not, you know, a nice story. These guys, not, a lot of them don't have nice, like, it's not like a nice and a happy ending. This guy's got, like, I, I hacked all these people up. I got all this. It's not, you know, not necessarily ending ending nice for these guys. So there is ways to reach them. So I think that's that's one thing. is like how do you you try and approach this? But the third thing is like the drug profits. Now it's the economic motive. It's driving this. Mm-hmm. So we got this multi billion dollar industry. The United Nations, a few years ago, used to say it was worth three hundred billion dollars globally drug trade. There's a, a, a RAND as a study, they, they estimate the US illegal drug market is $150 billion. $150 billion? Per year. Wow. Y, okay, you see these, you talk to drug traffickers. You know, like they buy, okay, where are you go to cocaine? Look at cocaine. $2,000 a kilo in Colombia. Uh, what, $12,000? In Mexico, um, twenty thousand dollars at the border, thirty thousand dollars, forty thousand dollars. New York, hundred thousand dollars. Break it up. You know, you can suddenly make it worth 200000 dollars. These profits profits going so fast. So this is what drug traffickers are doing. You put money in, you're taking money out. You're making huge, huge returns on your investments. So that's why I like. I mean, you no, know, you see anybody. You know, people want to be. We're in a capitalist world. People want to make money. You know what, you know, the kind of business we're in, media. Yeah. <laughs> not, a, not a lot of bucks in this, you know, we struggle to make a buck out of this. Imagine that. You can, you know, I'm gonna put in I'm gonna put in hundred thousand dollars to this and I'm gonna turn, you know, take away half a million in a couple of months or more. So this is like why, like this is so much money with this, and you know, anyone can do it, so like then people fight and the most violent people take over. Now at the same time, it's still not an easy solution. You Say like you know, I I do believe that you know, legalise marijuana. um, Might as well legalise marijuana. I think at this point. But now we've got fentanyl. Now fentanyl is the profits are even bigger than cocaine because fentanyl you you know you've got these tiny little chemical you know chemical stuff is extremely potent less bulk you don't have to worry about the whole harvesting process of like growing coca leaves and crop spraying labs in china the mexican cartels want to even create their own precursors so maybe even some point china could be outside the equation but right now china's part of this and you've got Americans dying now, I mean, this is horrific numbers 107,000 overdose deaths in 2021 in the United States. About 70,000 involved fentanyl. Not 30,000 involved crystal meth. I mean, they're
0: using it as weapons now, too. I'm seeing over and over again, it's becoming more and more common. You know, we're seeing police officers go down from fentanyl exposure. Mm. Before we get into the fentanyl. Yeah crisis I want to rewind and I I do want to say I I think that the educational program that you're speaking of is that is that is that just your idea or is somebody looking at maybe implementing that because yeah that could really work you know in in my initial thought was there's no way that's going to work because there's going to be multi-generational cartel members but then when you talk about how their life is one of the questions I ask a lot of the Special operations guys, you know that I interview on here is: Would you want your kid to have the life that you had, knowing what you know now? And I don't know the exact number, but it's got to be ninety percent. Say no, I don't Um, want my kid to have to live through that.
1: Well, that that that, that's like you know working in special operations with with a government salary, and people consider you a hero. Let alone being you know a cartel figure. I mean like I said there's different people and some of them are unrepentant mm-hmm. some of them have made it work for them there's traffickers who've made this stuff work for them have ended up stashing their assets and making deals with the government and and, and they end up being kind of clean with it but a lot of people they they don't want their kids um and and it's this you know it's it's bizarre like I, I've been with gang members cartel members and they're like on one side they you know they kill twenty seven people on the other side they're talking about they go to their the parents' evening at their at their kids' school and they're like they kind of some of these people it's a it's a weird bizarre world and you get into them like a lot of them um they they kind of struggle and, and wanna you know get a normal life out of this and stuff um they kind of live through this, this this area of brutal violence i think you know yeah a lot of a very good point. i think a lot of the kind of special forces military people. You can, you can sit down and probably sit in a room with these guys and kind of understand mm-hmm. and share a beer or have a cup of coffee because you both had, you know, you've seen extreme violence. You know what it's like. You've seen their bodies. You know what it's like. Okay, to, how, how do I process killing this guy? Um, how do I deal with that? Now, um, some of these sicarios, these I think they simply say, well, I'm taking orders. And they are. It's killing machines. You're recruited in. It's just like, well, I've got orders to go and kill these guys. That's what I'm doing. But if you look at like, why does the real severe violence come about, like, why, you know, you know, and ask this question, why, why, why do they leave um, the, the worst atrocity, or one of the worst atrocities in Mexico, which I've covered, was 49 bodies dumped on a road, all decapitated, all with their hands cut off and their feet cut off, dumped on a road. I got a call, and it was Sunday morning, it's 2012, I got a call, something's happening up in Monterrey. Oh, I jumped jumped on a plane, flew up there. When I got up there, they'd taken the bodies and put them in the morgue. So I went in the morgue and the smell of 49 bodies that they couldn't identify because they had no heads, no hands and no feet, just 49 lumps of meat. And it's like, why do they do that? What are they doing? Stuff. I actually recently got a, met one of the guys in the cartel in prison in the United States who was involved in in, in that cartel and gave me a bit of an explanation for, for for what they were doing with that there. But one of the things you see is you have combatants, people with you know with, with structures, irregular armed armed organizations, and they control. They're told to control territory. Top of that, boss, you have got to control territory. So, how do we control territory? We use terror. Mm-hmm. So, in, in that sense, they are using terror or terrorists, but the same way that the military groups have, have done this for forever. How do we control this territory? We've got my people scared of us.
0: I mean, it makes sense, you know. Yeah. As brutal as it is, it does make a hell of a lot of sense. And when you're recruiting you know, kids that are 12, 13 years old, I mean, by the time, I mean, they have to be desensitized. Like that yeah, so you, know? so,
1: so, so you so you're they're training up these kids now I tell you a horror story of what of, 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 of on that on that same uh, investigation same time. I went up there. So I was in the morgue 49 bodies and making sense of this And I came out of the morgue and there was a bunch of of like family members Looking and like, I was like, you know, what's going on? I talked to, to one woman. So like, oh, you know, we're trying to find if our loved ones who have disappeared are among these victims. So we want to do DNA tests. And this one woman I talked to was a school teacher and she described how her son was dragged out of their home on one evening, 18-year-old son, philosophy student. What happened was they were, she was sitting there, she had her two sons there, one 18-year-old, one 15-year-old. And suddenly the door, bang, 15 guys come in with guns. Start, because once you get these armed groups, they can start, you know, ravaging, attacking the local population, storming the house, start grabbing stuff. And then they say to her, which of your sons is the oldest? And she's like, can't even answer, can't even speak. Like, how to answer that? And the elder son, raised his hand and said I'm the eldest you know, you're not going to take my little brother and they took him she got a phone call the next day okay give us this amount of money we'll give you a son back she got the money you know, what, can, what you do as a parent at that moment got the money wherever she could relatives went up handed it in phoned up no response that was it her son was gone She was wandering around these events, these morgues, trying to find him. Other mothers I've talked to, same, very similar stories, who eventually found and identified the bodies of their kids after like three years. One of them in Veracruz, and I talked to her when she was looking for her kid who was taken away by our men, whose guy worked at customs, 24 years old, and eventually she identified his body. They, she was, she would become with a group of mothers, searching for, you know, you've just got thousands of disappearances that have come out of this conflict. So she was searching uh, for his, you know, for him with these various mothers, they were like marching. And a guy pulled up in a car and said, um, check out this place, and he had like a, a hand-drawn map might find some bodies here. So they went there, to first they said to the government, oh, we got this information of a government or whatever. So they went there themselves and started digging up in this field and started finding bones, skulls, bodies. Turned out to be the biggest mass grave in Mexico in in the modern times, 297. 297 remains. I mean, and this is like, But I mean, 297 skulls, I mean, it is a mess because it's It's like these bones, five years old, eight years old, one year old, two year old remains. They started pulling them out. Eventually, after several years, her son was identified in this mass grave. While they were pulling them out, so you start getting that smell again, that smell of, of kind of, you know, bodies being pulled out. Right in front of it was a housing area attempts at middle-class homes the kind of, you know, the, uh, kiddies, bikes, basketball hoops, and the, and the families write a thing saying, well, you know, we're getting this stink of this coming in, into our housing. And that's, that's how, how, like, bizarre and messed up this conflict is. You know, that, that makes me just
0: rethink the, what is the, what are they trying to achieve by storming people's houses and just pulling their kids out? And killing, telling them that they're going to take a ransom for it, yeah, and yeah. then killing
1: them. I, so I think what happens a lot. I mean, there's the, in a, every every case, has got different stories. But in that case, what you can have, I mean, like you've got the, the you know brutal soldiers. You know, and you you can relate to this. Um, you know, being a soldier. Imagine the most kind of brutal soldiers, but you haven't gone through like good recruitment. They've kind of rec- recruited the kind of meanest. Um, hateful people they can find mm-hmm. from the streets. But in a sense, they're, they're you, know, you know, victims and victimizers to an extent. But yeah, still, you know, hateful, brutal people, train them up, make them bloody, and tell you, you guys got to control these territories, give them guns, make them commit terror. Then once you've got an armed group out there committing terror, okay, uh, we want some money. It's just going to raid a house, it's going to raid a store, it's going to steal a car, do what we like raid someone's house, steal some stuff, okay, we'll take the son, let's get, some, get him to pay a ransom, kill him anyway. Maybe we killed him already. Maybe we beat the crap out of this kid and killed him already. Or maybe we recruit these people and you, you get, you know, people who are recruited and forced to do stuff. You know, recruit and force them, put themselves, give the, you know, give these people we recruit, give them a gun and tell them to do some stuff. Yeah. Or, or, or hack up bodies or do this or do that. Um, it's it, it's it's brutal. It, it, it's it's kind of one of the one of the crazy things about this um, Is this I mean that kind of level of almost like medieval kind of warfare? Kind of medieval more in you know, a morality in this stuff um, and, and in some ways you can look at medieval stuff the way these cartels operate. It's like fealty, you know You've got like one powerful Drug boss and then a guy below who's like swearing fealty to him and a guy below swearing fealty to him but that's happening. At the same time, you've got like, say a trillion dollar economy. You've got, um, you go to Mexico City, you can sit in a Starbucks and you know, sit there on your laptop and you can go to a trendy bar. Um, you can go to Cancun and go to some you know, beautiful beaches. And that's happening as well at the same time. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of weird how this kind of normality is around this like very harsh conflict. When I
0: first started this whole podcasting thing, an online store was about as far from my mind as you can get. And now, most of you already know this, but I'm selling Vigilance Elite gummy bears online. We actually have an entire merch collection that's coming soon. And let me tell you, it is so easy because I'm using a platform that is extremely user-friendly, and that's Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. What I really like about Shopify is it prompts you. All the things that you wanna do with your web store, like connect your social media accounts, write blog posts, just have a blog in general. Shopify actually prompts you to do this. You want people to leave reviews under your items? You can do that on Shopify. It's very simple. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout 36% better on average compared to the other leading commerce platforms. Shopify is a global force for millions of entrepreneurs in over 175 countries and power 10% of all e-commerce platforms here in the United States. You can sign up right now for $1 a month, it's Shopify.com slash Sean. That's all lowercase. Go to Shopify.com slash Sean now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's Shopify.com slash Sean. You know, back to the back to the education program that you had, is how many of these kids even have a choice? I mean, if they're going into mm-hmm. residence, yanking them out and forcing them to go yeah. pack bodies up or or Become a Sicario hitman, or, or whatever. Even if it's just a lookout, what, is there even an option to say no?
1: Yeah, so, so that's, that's the thing. So, so like, yeah, so what you asked before about like, is this my idea? Like, I've interviewed and, and I've met plenty of social workers out there in Mexico and other places in Jamaica, in El Salvador, and you know different places around the place. In in Juarez, uh, there was a, a woman I interviewed a bunch of times, and you know, I never, I still phone her up for a very real smart woman, she used to work in a factory herself in the city, and she was doing social work stuff like this, and she was, you know, she, was, she taught me a lot of this stuff. Um, this is what's happening here. Um, for a time they were getting money, for a time when Juarez, uh, bec- Juarez became the most murderous city in the world around 2010, 11. And then, you know, you would get some of the US money going to these programs, USAID, would start going to some of these social work programs and stuff. And it helped, did help get the violence down for a while. But it kind of peters out, this stuff. Um, and, and the Mexican government, you know, they have, you know, the problem is, you know, it's, it's corruption. You get the Mexican government, you know, some top level, uh, will give out money for crime prevention. Then you get, like, middlemen who are not really good players, mm-hmm. just stealing money. And then you get people, like, distracted and, and, and doing stuff like these really bad prevention programs, rather than getting to the really good people who are, and there are good people there, who are on the ground, who know, and like, say, it's kind of you have got to reach these kids young. A di- more difficult question. I mean, you know, I think we can, all of us can, can probably agree that trying to steer twelve-year-old kids away from this lifestyle is a good thing. More difficult is what you do with the kids who are eighteen who have committed multiple murders already. I mean, you know, there's not much help. I mean, you know, can you, you know, but how can you find any any way of them out of these cartels? Is it only prison or death for these guys
0: when
1: mm-hmm. um, they're committing a bunch of you know horrible crimes? So is, you know, can you have kind of any armistice, any kind of peace deal? Um, this, you know, like uh, you know, you know, disarmament, disbanding these forces. You know, maybe you can't. They kind of tried a bit in certain places. and they haven't, they haven't really worked. In Colombia, they've kind of done that a bit more. It's like with the guerrilla group in Colombia. They're like, okay, we can try and disarm them and try, create a program to try and demobilize. Speak.
0: You know, I just <clears throat> I uh, reached out to somebody. I'm trying to get on the show. Actually, his name's Rick Doblin. He's uh, he runs Maps, mm. which is a psychedelic uh, nonprofit out of Canada. They do a ton of research, and he said he's actually in Iceland right now doing a uh, some type of a of some type of a convention, big meeting with um, police officers and and actually the person. I'm gonna butcher this, but he's in charge of the prison system in Iceland, and they're thinking about implementing some type of a psychedelic program. It sounds like, maybe, possibly with MDMA, um, in in doing this therapy for people coming out of the prison systems, hoping that it's gonna help um, help them transition back into you know a normal life, and 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 increase the probability that they will not you know commit. The same type of crime again. Do you think? Do you think there's any possibility of that happening down there?
1: Well, see, one of the problems there is like you know, you, you know, if, if it's your family who, who had who had a kid, you know, butchered, you know, you gonna want no forgiveness for these people. That's true. Um, I mean, some of the there was a case of. I mean, some some of could, they actually use one of those. They use young kids as well to commit murders because young kids in the Mexican justice system in some states they can only get five years. In prison. Okay. Um, so there's kids who commit. I mean, there was, was, was a case of El you know, Ponchis a few years ago. He was actually a U.S. citizen. Really, so he might be back here in the United States. But he was. just uh, going back a few, uh, few years, and he was. There was videos of him where they had guys hanging up, and he was part of the crew, and he was like a little mascot with the crew, like beating and torturing these guys. And then when the military caught him, and there was journalists around there, when the military caught him, and I know one of the guys who was there, and they asked him this, that they put the cameras up. And this guy's got three sons and was kind of knew how to talk to him. And was like kind of stern, you know, what have you done? I was like, I decapitated four people. It's like a 14-year-old kid said that. And I had it on cameras, so it, it was on TV. It became a camera, kind of big scandal. And the guy did, Five years or so, he's out released. Probably up here in the United States now. Um, you know, other cases where people are older and they can give them can give them longer sentences. But it's like, how much you know? You know, you know if, if you're the mother whose son was dragged away and murdered, you know, you want you're going to want him in prison as much as you can. There's no death penalty in Mexico. Even, even a country where you have, you know, you can have 35,000 murders in a year and no death that's, penalty. That's ironic, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And, and, and another thing is that they call, a lot of the time, they call the hits executions. Really? So They call them in Spanish, they like executions. They used to use the word like ejecutados, executed. So it's there like, you know, from them, it's like, well, from the cartel point of view, we have a kind of process here. We, we, you know, we, we made a judgment, the guy's got to go, we're going to execute him. So you know you have all these excuses. They executions. set the rules.
0: Yeah, yeah, they set the rules. Yeah,
1: but uh, but yeah, I mean on, on the flip side. So I mean all, you know on the one side, you've got you know I, I really do believe in, in 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 the social programs, particularly say for the the younger kids. I mean you know twelve years old below, before they've been recruited. But you know you've got to have uh, crate law enforcement. You got to you can't have impunity. You can't have now in in Mexico overall. Um, about 90% of murders go unpunished. Now it's really a bit more than that. That, that figure is like based on saying for every 100 murders in 10, in 10 of those cases, somebody has been sent to prison or given a you know, sentence for those murders. The other 90, nobody has. Sometimes really though they only caught one person but there's several people involved. Sometimes they caught the wrong person. In some states, it's like ninety-eight percent impunity. So, for every fifty murders, only one of those cases is somebody being sentenced to it. Imagine if you're, you know, you could be a hitman, but also just a regular guy. You want to kill somebody? You think, well, <laughs> I've got one in fifty chance of being caught. I'm not exactly a deterrent. So, it's like you've got to have, you've got to fight impunity. But to do that, when the situation is so bad, right? Like right now, you've got to have pretty hard enforcement and to try and bring things down kind of set some rules and kind of like you know push this down from where it's at right now which is like on you know on, you know, on the edge on the, you know on the, on the cliff the cliff of the abyss
0: interesting rewinding real quick all the way back uh, to what we talked about declaring them a terrorist organization hmm. or
1: some type of insurgency what would the what would the downfall be the downside be of, of yeah. that. I mean, so we're talking about from the US policy point of view, yeah? We can talk about it from any- Or from the, Mex- from the Mexican. I mean, because yeah. the Mexican, they they do use sometimes terrorist charges against them. I'm, I'm asking because I, f- I feel like
0: the minute that that happens, that they get declared a terrorist organization or an insurgency, funding is going to come extremely fast and there's going to be a ton of it. Mm. So.
1: That's that's why I don't understand why they don't just okay. So 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 like say say we look at, we look at this, like U.S. says let's look at the Sinaloa cartel or the Jalisco New Generation cartel, particularly being mentioned. But look look, look at the Sinaloa cartel. So say if you declare okay, the Sinaloa cartel is a terrorist organization, then it's not like. So with Al-Qaeda, you know, you have these kind of certain targeted members you're going to target, you're going to find out these networks mm-hmm. um, and go around and get them. We're talking about in Sinaloa, this is an organization or it's a network really more than an organization with hundreds of thousands of people involved in this. I mean, this is like... you. You go to these villages. You go to the town, to the city. This is just a huge, huge thing. So you get drawn into so saying, so saying, okay, we can just target anybody who's involved. I and mean, a lot of people, it's like a, kind of, a lot of the time, it's, it's it's a it's a loose network in these places, or you know, you've got like a it's kind of medieval in some ways. You have powerful people and people who swear loyalty to them in these areas. Um, you're gonna go in. You know, we're gonna gonna go in Mexico with with US drones. Like, even if you take out 50 of these guys, 100 of these guys, it's gonna keep on coming back. You're kind of drawn into a real swamp there. Um, you know, and you know, you start flying those kind of missions into Mexico, you know, what is it gonna, you know, it's not it's not like there's a, a quick go in there and take it. It's not like there's like a thousand guys you can take out. Mm-hmm. The problem's over. In the country of Mexico, we're talking about millions of people. It's more like. I mean because these are say sprawling organizations and and you know you say they're involved in a bunch of stuff It's not only drugs anymore drugs are huge and drugs finance them and make them so powerful Because when you don't make billions and billions from drugs, you buy so many guns you train so many sicarios You buy so much corruption protection you become a very very powerful group which then allows you to do a bunch of other stuff So then okay human smuggling into the united states uh, I was down in, in Tijuana um, and I, I found a human smuggler there. You know, initially he was like, I went, I went there and, and I asked him who who's this and said, oh, this guy here. He, he, he's, you know, there's been these, they call them polleros who are like chicken herders. And at first of all, it was like, you know, you, you could be anything. You know, I mean, you're a white guy. There's there's Ukrainians, you know, r- Russians. There's, there's anybody all around the world. They're looking for money all the time. I went there, And I very quickly said I was a journalist because I didn't want to like uh, string him along too much because right, soon as that he was like changed. But like he confirmed numbers with me and I confirmed them with a guy who ran, uh, an American uh, ICE agent who, who ran uh, a, a, a task force looking at these uh, immigrant smuggling groups. And he had a lot of sources inside as well. The numbers are pretty much there. Like they now, the numbers have shot right up. So it's like twelve to $15,000 dollars head now going in more like they, they would take them on boats around the coast like eighteen thousand dollars um they got like some other stuff that through worse death it's a bit cheaper and this thing now of, of asylum claim where they just flip them over the wall to hand themselves in like for 500 dollars, just like just jump you over the wall and you hand yourself into into the border patrol and, and try and claim asylum. But anyway, people actually smuggling, sneaking into the United States. You've got millions of people paying for this, services. So do the maths. I mean, the, the Mexican foreign secretary said they reckon like over 10 billion a year on human smuggling.
0: Where 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 are they getting this money?
1: The smugglers, the migrants paying. Mm-hmm. What do you think about that? Um, you just said twelve to fifteen thousand yeah, yeah. dollars a head. Yeah, yeah. And these people are
0: coming from nothing. Yeah, yeah. Making, you know, I, th- I think you threw the number out three hundred bucks a month. You know, to yeah, yeah. to 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 be a lookout for a cartel. Where do they come up with twelve fifteen thousand yeah, dollars? Yeah.
1: So say you got, fa- I mean, you might have family members in the United States already. Um, think about the investment. I mean, you know, you might, you know, even if you're paying, even if you pay fifteen thousand dollars to get to the United States, how much could you work- make here over ten years?
0: No, I, t- I completely understand. Yeah, so I'm saying, where do they get the yeah, money? Yeah, physically get the money I too. I would say mm. over 50% of the population in the US probably doesn't have $15,000 in their bank account.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, you, you've got you know, family networks. Um, you know, a lot of the time, families, you might have a family who's, you know, in El Salvador, they li- they, they're they a lot more living through remittances in, in lot of villages in Mexico. You go to these villages and like everything's built through money sent back from the United States. And so you're building up a family network and you're saving up money and putting... Okay, another thing that happens, you say, okay, I haven't got $15,000. I can come up with five. Okay. You pay me off. Then I've got something over you. Then I can hold one of these guys prisoner until you pay the money back and and so forth. So then you get like these things where you get like... uh, Stashes of, you know, in, 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 had a bunch of these in Phoenix for a while. These big, you know, people held up and it was like, it's because people were like, they had, they didn't have the money, or they pay half up front and half when they were delivered and they weren't, they couldn't get the family members to pay them. So they end up kind of kidnapping these people in the United States for that kind of money. But I was just saying, so like, you got human smuggling, huge business. Um, mining, now mining, a lot of gold being mined in Mexico. A lot of foreign companies, particularly Canadian, going in there for the mining. Cartels control the areas. Cartels have now realized there's a big amount of cash in gold mining, and they want a piece of that.
0: There's also a lot of lithium mining going on in Mexico, correct?
1: There's lithium. It's not really happening yet, money-wise. Okay. Um, there was a massive lithium deposit found in Sonora. Uh, the... You know, they initially said, oh, this is the biggest in the world. It's a bit more complicated. I talked to some somebody involved in the mine. It's a bit more complicated. It's like lithium everywhere. It's like verified. They were investing a bunch of money before they'd got a real return. Then the Mexican government said, oh, we want that. And they, they said, we'll nationalize lithium like oil. And then, and then the companies were like, oh, we can't make any money out of this then. So it's not really happening yet. But there's a lot of lithium in Mexico, a lot of potential there. But gold, silver, there's a lot of, a lot of money being made out of that right now. And a lot of the companies, I mean, at the end of the day, we'll we'll sell for, you know, we've got to pay a certain percentage of of what we make here to the community, the local community, Mm -hmm. who's running and controlling the local community. Um, So that's another industry. And then you've got oil theft, which is, you know, drilling into pipelines and taking out oil and that's worth billions a year. I I had no idea that was happening. Yeah, yeah, huge. They call it, in in Spanish, they call it huachicoleros. Huachicol is stolen oil. It's been a big deal for a lot of years. So you've got, you know, Mexico's a huge oil producer, and these, these groups who are now taken over by cartels, are working with cartels, but there's a tradition of these oil thieves, they often drill two holes. You know, drilling one hole to take out oil and drilling another hole to put in uh, another liquid to try and equalise the pressure. There was one incident, there was like a really bad drill, just the oil was spurting out and a bunch of people from the the local town came and started filling up all their gas cans and then it exploded and it killed like over 100 people. It's like brutal. Um, But yeah, I mean, huge uh, I mean, an, an incredible loss for, for government. And, and this president's tried to crack down on oil theft, but it still goes on. I've been to a place in Sinaloa where they're selling stolen gasoline. And, 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 and you drive in there, and it's not even that, I mean, you know, it's too cheap, but it's like, say, 35, 40% cheaper than it is at the pumps. So it's cheaper, but it's not like, you know, dirt cheap considering it's stolen gasoline. And I went in there with a guy I work with in Sinaloa, and we went in there, went in there, and we drove in there. And they had a bunch of these just, just big old uh like plastic cans of of or plastic containers of, of gasoline. And they were doing this spraying this, this stuff all the time because of the smell, I think. And they went in there and he filled up his car and his other cars there, nice cars, different stuff that go in there, paying cash by stolen gasoline. <laughs> that's that's refined gasoline. So you got that business as well. Um, you know, you've got uh, product piracy, um, you know, pirated goods, truck theft. I mean, there's a huge amount of cargo theft in Mexico. And then markets which sell stolen goods. And um, yeah, so you've got, you know, enormous. So they have a lot of verticals. Yeah, yeah. You've got their, their diversified uh, organized crime networks, is really what they are now but drugs are still huge and selling drugs locally and trafficking drugs. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, there's got to be something done about this. Um, You know, societies shouldn't live with this. Uh, And you're seeing, I think, for the last couple of years, more of a lean towards harder approaches. Would you like to see them be labeled a terrorist organization personally? Uh, Yeah. it doesn't. It would, like it doesn't upset me a lot. What they do is is, is terrorism. I just don't think it's a silver bullet. Okay. Uh, I mean, I, I can see. You know. You know. The, the, I could. You know. Can hear arguments about this uh, from. I can see from certain American law enforcement perspective. You can just say go after these guys. And you don't have to go through like, like the DA when they go after these guys. they There's a lot of paperwork. They build up files on these guys. And it takes them like two years sometimes. To like they build up and they've got to, build all this. They have, to have these informants and these wiretaps and all this stuff, and they're building up this paperwork, 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 go before a grand jury and get these indictments, get them out and then get the extra, you know. They're like years bogged down in this stuff. And then by that time, you know, that, <laughs> the guy's already been killed and someone else is like running stuff. So you can see like it's an argument, you know, that, that you know has somebody make It's like we've got to, you know, just change the game now. This is a different game now they terrorists right away. And anybody we can kind of prove any kind of link to this, we can just take them out. Uh, but still, it's like, you know, they're, you know so the, 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 there's so many of these people. It's like, well, you, you know, you're not going to go in there and take out, you know, like, uh, you're going to go in there and start shooting up villages like in Afghanistan or, or, or like, you know, doing drone strikes like in Afghanistan or whatever. And um, you know, what reaction would that create from, from, from the Mexican population? And our people not, not even involved. So so I don't see it as a silver bullet. Um, but, you know, I, I'm not, and I'm not, you know, I don't think it's, it's outrageous. Yeah.
0: Well, let's take a quick break. Yeah. We'll come back. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll get into the fentanyl. Yeah, yeah, sure thing. Thank you for listening to The Sean Ryan Show. If you haven't already, please take a minute, head over to iTunes, and leave The Sean Ryan Show a review. We read every review that comes through and we really appreciate the support. Thank you. Let's get back to the show. All right, we're back from the break. That was a fantastic lunch, by the way. Um, So since we're kind of on the subject of structure of the cartels, how they recruit, I've never really gotten into how, how prevalent are the cartels outside of Mexico's borders? Are they setting up shop here in the US are they setting up shop in places like Honduras, El Salvador, Colombia, Peru, Venezuela, you know, Guatemala, Panama? Or, or are they staying in Mexico?
1: Yeah, so, uh, I mean, they're huge in the United States. I mean, they're massive. Uh, they operate in the United States very differently than Mexico. So it's like kind of attack and defense, that kind of difference. Okay. But they're all over, I mean they're pretty much in every, I would say they're probably in every state in the United States, uh, in some way operating, connecting. So, so what does that mean? Like, whereas in Mexico, uh, you know, you have, you know, you know, hundreds of gunmen on standby all the time, ready to jump on stuff, policing things, policing labs in a bunch of businesses, um, ready to kidnap people, shake people down, kill people at will here they're very different, or traditionally they have been. So there's been a few times, if you look over the years, when they started dropping bodies in the United States. One was over in Texas, when the Setas started killing a bunch of people in South Texas in the 2000s. One was over in California, around the San Diego area, when a break off from the Ariana Felix cartel started killing a bunch of people, a group called Los Palillos. Both times, law enforcement hit them very hard, so they kind of learned this lesson, okay in the United States, we can make billions of dollars, but there's certain things we don't want to do. we don't want to kill too many people. sometimes even they're better off kidnapping somebody in the united states it might be a it might be a Mexican national anyway, or it could be somebody from here driving them into Mexico and committing the murder over there, really yeah, okay. absolutely it's particularly on the El Paso-Juarez border. You've got this group called the Barrio Azteca who are a cross-border organization working with the Juarez cartel. Began as a prison gang in Texas and grew and basically became a paramilitary organization. But they're also very active in Texas. And they kidnap people, drive them Mexico and kill them in Mexico, and drop you know, another body in, in Juarez. Because, you know, look, think about the investigation. In, in Juarez in 2010, there was 3,000 murders. In El Paso, there was like 12. Wow. So like you're going to dump it in Juarez and it becomes one of 3,000 you know, murders not investigated or have it in El Paso where it can be like investigated. So they, they learned a lesson over the years of, okay, we don't kill people in the same you way. Know, we're not, not going to do all these crazy kind of beheadings, but they're all here. and Unless they're going to be killing police officers like they do in Mexico every day and make sure they can kill police officers if they're not on their payroll. Here in the United States, it's more difficult. Now, I'll give a butt to that. Historically, that's been the case. With the way law enforcement in the United States is right now, demoralized, losing uh, officers, is that always going to be the case?
0: Yeah, I see where you're you're talking about the defund the police movement, how that's shaked
1: out. Yeah, what's happening in the United States? I mean, I talk to officers here in the United States, talk to agencies in the United States, they're pretty much demoralized. Not only the police departments, and anti-narcotics are pretty demoralized in many cases, also a lot of the federal agencies, a lot of these, these DA agencies, like there's just a general malaise, a lot of people are fed up with their organizations mm-hmm. in many cases. Now, will they have the same way of hitting these cartels very hard? Will they always last? I don't know. I would say cartels are only getting stronger here over the years. Now, what does it really mean, how they're operating here? Say so if you look at, um, um, you, they, they drive drugs in from Mexico into the United States and have hubs, hub cities. Los Angeles, Phoenix, Houston, up in Chicago, these can be hubs. They drive a bunch of drugs up there, then they move them around, and they go down the chain to smaller towns. What's happened over the years you've seen a change, like, first you had the Colombians trafficking a lot of drugs into the United States, cocaine. Then the Colombians were paying Mexicans to traffic the drugs themselves. Like, so the the Colombians were bringing the cocaine in back in the 1980s, flying it right into Florida. Then that was shut down with the uh, Miami Task Force, um, Florida Task you know, Anti-Drug Task Force, Navy ships, all that kind of stuff. They kind of made it more difficult to bring drugs, fly them right over the Caribbean from Colombia into Florida. So the Colombians turned to Mexico and the Mexican cartels who were already moving weed and heroin. And they said, okay, we're going to pay you to traffic cocaine for us. We give it to you in Colombia or we give it to you in Panama, somewhere in Central America, and you move that up and deliver it to us in the United States and we, we sell it. And the Colombians a lot of the time were wholesalers the wholesale, of the United States, you know, wholesale cocaine in the United States, then it goes down and like, all different, you know, different people get involved. And then they start paying the Mexicans, and then the Mexicans say, we well, we want a piece of this. So for a while it was like, we own this cocaine between us 50-50. Then the Mexicans in the end just started buying the cocaine from the Colombians, just buy it off you in Colombia for a couple of thousand bucks a key, and we can move it ourselves and make the profits ourselves. So you had the Mexicans becoming the, the, the cartels that will move the cocaine and be the wholesalers. But then you see another change. You start seeing, and you saw this first with a group called La Familia Michoacana, and then with the Jalisco New Generation Cartel. You saw a whole other groups of immigrant communities in the 2000s. Michoacana and Jalisco are particularly large numbers of immigrants across the whole United States. So whereas was before the you know Mexicans would bring it into Los Angeles, you know, bunch of cocaine, bunch of drugs, sell it to people, it would get to these small towns gradually. They start creating networks in these small towns. So suddenly, all these places, you know, you know, it's, it's sad to say because the, the vast majority of Mexicans are very hardworking migrants in these places. But within and kind of piggybacking off these migrant communities, you got dealers setting up shops in these shops in these places. Uh, so suddenly, you got a spread of networks all over the place, all over the country. And then you know, you have dealers in you know the midwest in in, in in small towns in the midwest with direct lines to the helisco cartel okay oh now still they're like okay they're they're, they're moving drugs so they with the main activities moving drugs around the country distributing them still often they'll go right down to kind of kilo level and then like the street dealers can be can be a mix of people moving the money and collecting the money laundering the money or moving the money back to mexico and acquiring firearms and taking them to mexico as well some of the key operations are what the cartels are doing here now they're not they're not like in mexico involved in you know like uh, you know our and and, and the human smuggling and bringing people to the united states and the networks as well because they're not only bringing them into the, crossing the border of the united states when you pay that money, that will allow you to go to any you know any city you want. You could be going to your family in Atlanta to work, and you're paying your ticket there. So they've got very significant operations. Now, you know what does that mean in the future? I'd be concerned.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, seeing Mexico, seeing how how this organized crime in Mexico you know really tears it apart. I'd be concerned about what this means in the future. I mean,
0: to me, I think the biggest concern would be them intermingling in our in our politics mm. and <clears throat> infiltrating the police departments, mm. the military, the border patrol, DEA, FBI, all of them. You know? Do you think? Because I have heard that they are specifically sending guys into the military to get trained, then come back, come out. And then train the cartels U.S. military tactics. I don't see why that wouldn't be true.
1: Yeah. So, so first, in terms of infiltrating stuff, you've, you've already got we've already got a track record of certain police officers, certain uh, officials working with the cartels. Uh, and it, it, I mean, it can be different things. I got, got one interview I did with a guy who was working for the cartel, an American guy here working for the cartel. Who was working for actually a cable company, like laying cable, but he had a government ID, and he had a government ID to go back and forth over the border. Now he was shifted guns for them, shifted firearms from the United States to Texas, to from the United States to Mexico, using a government ID, and also. He then got involved in it. He was like driving around laying cables. He had scanners and he was following the border patrol and giving all this information to the cartel. And he was, he said, I mean, he was doing it for the money, but also he's kind of doing it for a thrill as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was like surprised how clumsy the border patrol was. He was, who he said, it, it was like a clumsy, they're kind of giving away a lot of stuff. It's very easy for me to locate all the stuff. And I'm giving out the cartel so the cartel knows and, and, and operates this stuff. Now, you've also got cases of cops um, in some of the border towns in the US side and some border patrol agents who have been, have been caught working with the, with the cartels. And there's cases um, out there. Uh, I think it's obviously a a far smaller level than Mexico, but it's it's still out there and it's something to be concerned about. In terms of getting military instruction for the cartels, you've seen um, US vets recruited by the cartels. Uh, How are they recruiting them? Like how how are they they getting to them? How are they Mm -hmm. finding them for recruitment? Um, some some of them, some of the cases that I've seen of solid cases have been Mexican Mexican Americans who have been in some cases even deported for any other reasons. Even though they've been in the military, they've messed up or something with the like papers, commit some crime afterwards, and end up being deported. So they're back in those kind of networks in Mexico, and they're, and they're like you know, obviously got very sellable skills. But there have been there's also some cases of kind of US, you know, American military guys. I'm not sure exactly how, how what the outreach would be, like exactly who the connections, are. I mean, um, a lot, you know, it may be in some of the kind of mercenary security circles uh there's, there's there's definitely like a lot of cartels are hungry for ex military people from whatever so you know, a few years ago they would actually advertise and they had like like um actually they'd hang up blankets writing like you know are you military or ex military you
0: know oh, man. we'll
1: hire you in mexico we'll hire you you know don't ride to the bus you know don't ride you know ride bus the bus to the work um, you know, we'll hire you. We're, we're looking have a have a better life for you and your children. Um, you get Colombian, some Colombian ex-military, Guatemalan ex-military. Um, you know, when people find out, you know, get away. No, you know, we'll, you know we'll, we'll pay for that expertise. Wow, do you think they're intermingling in our politics yet? Uh, I haven't seen that in terms of U.S. politicians. Like, uh, like, yeah, I mean, and in, in Mexico, you know, there, there's a huge capture of, of politics by drug cartels, so we could talk about narco politics, narco politicians.
0: I mean, it would be, I'm not going to say it would be simple, but China is definitely involved in American politics. I don't see why the cartels, I mean, they're obviously
1: intertwined, you mm. know, somewhat. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, the way it is in. I mean, in Mexico. Um, so in Mexico, that's also evolved the way they're running politics in Mexico. So for a long time, it was like the cartel bribes. You know, a mayor bribes a police chief to move. Then the cartels get stronger. And they start to get more powerful at a local level than than mayors and police chiefs. And they start to say, you have to work for us. And we're going to take 10% of your budget. So like 10% of the city budget has to go to the cartel. This is a bunch of towns across Mexico. And then you see cases where they start working with the bigger party at a federal level. Then they start saying, okay, we'll deliver votes for you. So we'll use our armed groups to be intimidating people to vote for you. Uh, you know, and, 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 and then you have also kind of cutting out the middle man and actually have cartel guys themselves who are really the politicians, who are really the, the kind of gangsters who get into politics. I mean, famously, obviously Pablo Escobar, you know, ran for Congress. And, um, so you see, you see that, that reach and that power and that influence. Now, at a US, level and i haven't seen it um it's it's possible in the long term definitely it's something to watch out for uh, and you got to watch out for this stuff you can start at like local levels and then but it, you know it's yeah i mean i mean in terms of so in terms of china you know they're 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 working together but like you know, to, to think about strategically about like how you'd you you know like how you'd actually start taking over politicians or, or bribing or paying money for their campaigns, I mean, it's possible these guys are moving a lot of money. Um, they're obviously buying, a, some of them buying a lot of real estate in the United States. That's I mean, what? I would think it would
0: actually, you know, now that we're on the subject, I would think it would be very simple for them to breach into American politics. Mm-hmm. With the amount of money that they have, the billions and billions, I mean, they got to have trillions by now, right? Well, to pump that into, yeah. if they were to move, it, whether it's an American or a Latin American running for office, they can pump so much money into that into a local campaign. You know, I, I would think it
1: would be relatively simple to to, to mm. take it. Yeah, I guess I guess like when when they're like running like a in, in Mexico. You got very clear objectives of what you can get from that, from from that mayor, from from that governor. So you wanna control or influence that state, so they're gonna allow you know, you know all kinds of things from you know, from from turning a blind eye on all your all your drug loads and all your stuff going through to actually the police working for you as as hitmen picking people up. You know, you want somebody picked up, you use the local police, the police are, are lookouts, and they become incorporated with the cartel. I guess like, I mean, you know, there, there have been cases uh, of saying some of these small towns, someone to watch out for, like where there's like some of the small towns in like on the border um, where you start to see people with, on, on cartel payrolls there. What would your next step be if you if you were a cartel looking to infiltrate the US? Where would you start? Um, I would say, yeah, I mean, you know, some of the, some of the, some of these small towns where they're moving stuff through, where they have operations. Well, I mean, they're, they're so we, we can see some cases there. Some of the towns, you know, little towns where there's, where there was, um, uh, say so police officers, police chiefs, some, some of these little small towns, um, there, because that gives you actually operational stuff, operational useful stuff, border patrol officers at lower levels. Um, can you start, you know, infiltrating higher ups, moving up the chains there? Yeah. Um, federal agents, I mean there have been, you know, federal agents taking taking bribes, obviously. But again, it's still nothing compared to, to I mean they're, they're still I guess hard to break the kind of the kind of federal agents in the same way they've managed to do in Mexico. Well that's that's good. <laughs> At least we have that going for us. Yeah.
0: You know, but well, let's get into some of the fentanyl stuff you've been talking about. So, at the beginning of this interview, you said you went to a port, mm. and all the fentanyl was coming in through one of these ports on the on the Pacific side, I believe. Mm. You said from China.
1: Hmm. Yeah. So, so to talk about, I was going to talk about the the revolution. I'd say to understand what's happening now, we can look at a revolution that's happened in Mexican drug trafficking the last fifteen years but particularly the last five years, and it's accelerating the last three years. So for a long time, we had plant-based drugs being the way that drug traffickers move their product. So they, you know, you get farmers in Colombia growing coca leaves, farmers in Mexico, Guerrero, Sinaloa, Michoacan, growing marijuana and growing opium poppies, which they make to heroin. So you've got a, a chain, you can look at the chain. The grow there and the chain's quite long and quite invulnerable, but, you know, the money keeps on coming in, there's always, there's to do this. So, ph- pharmaceuticals revolutionized this. Do you know they didn't have this chain anymore? Now, there's a guy, a very interesting guy to look at in this evolution, a Chinese guy called Shen Li Yigong. What's his name? Shen Li Yigong. Now, Shen Li Yigong... It was a a guy born in China who moved to Mexico and was a pharmaceutical entrepreneur. The accusation was that he was bringing, in that time, the precursors for crystal meth. Selling the precursors to Sinaloa cartel traffickers from the Beltran Leyva organization. And that was then being made into crystal meth and trafficked to the United States. This grew particularly in 2005 after, in the United States, they started clamping down on crystal meth, which bikers have been making and stuff, with a thing called the Combat Methamphetamine Act. So he goes out to Mexico, and this guy starts bringing it in and selling it to the drug cartels, and it's a big boom. Now, they bust his house in Mexico City in 2007, and they found in cash $207 million in cash. 205 million in dollars and a couple of million in pesos, euros, Hong Kong dollars, other stuff. The biggest drug cash bust in world history. You know, like imagine that much cash being found. So, kind of crazy thing, they bust all this cash. He then, you know, ran, it was up in Las Vegas where he was bringing money to Vegas. He was going up to Vegas with suitcases full of cash and like gambling in, in Vegas kind of crazy stuff. I was working at the agency AP at the time when this happened and we actually ended up through a reporter had, doing an interview with him while he was in the United States, which was kind of a crazy interview. We sent, we sent people who spoke Spanish, English and Chinese and he spoke all three with an accent and had this kind of crazy thing and made it through those accusations. Bit of a crazy story of intrigue but he was eventually extradited to Mexico. The Chinese government wouldn't cooperate with a bunch of documents and stuff. They were gonna charge him in the US as well. China's government cooper- cooperated with him to Mexico. He's still in prison in Mexico. Hasn't been fully sentenced yet. This is caught in, you know, this is going back, you know, 15 years, this case, and he still hasn't been fully sentenced yet. But he was a pioneer. He saw the opportunities. Bring in chemicals. Forget about growing weed in the mountains, growing opium poppies, growing coca leaves, Bringing chemicals cook them up in the labs, do it that way. Profits are enormous. The profits can be massive, you've got less links in the chain, you can just make unlimited amounts of this stuff. Okay, fast forward, you start getting the recipes for fentanyl. Now, problems with fentanyl as well, You look into this fentanyl, it's not like one formula. There's like, this is like more than a thousand different formulas, different types of fentanyl. All the different formulas around it. Yeah. So first of all, you know, you get fentanyl, again, making it in China. First, they just you know, bring in full-on fentanyl. Then China starts to ban some types so they can switch around and they ban more types under pressure from Trump. But it's still coming out of China. And I mean, there was a report on this, a congressional report on this. They said, okay, it's still being made in China. And the Chinese chemists are going to India and setting up labs in India and making it there. Now, I went to Mancenillo's. Biggest container port in, in Mexico, huge amounts of containers coming in. Some of the problems with this is, first of all, they got this like on, on a, a bill of lading, they got like some pharmaceutical coming in from China, it can say something, it could be something else. You don't know it is what it says, and you've got a couple of you know, millions of crates coming through mm-hmm. this port. Then if they stop and check and stuff, they do these kind of certain things. They have to stop. It's like going through this stuff and then finding, identifying this stuff as being, you know, if you know where to search. So, you know, there's other ways of avoiding it. Like sometimes they bring a ship over they can throw it off the ship. Uh, they call it like, a, a, they have a word for it, uh, like a sucker fish, these kind of fish that would grab onto a bigger fish and can take a ride with them. So they have like a separate containers on the big ship and take it out. But the people told me there, people I talked to, so there's intermediaries at the port who will take forty thousand dollars to pass containers through. Intermediaries working with customs authorities. Forty thousand dollars, your container goes through.
0: How much? Do you have any idea how much one container of whatever substances are in there to make fentanyl? How
1: much? Fentanyl uh, could one container make? Well, I mean, you know, it's it, got to be. I mean, one, that's the thing about nothing about fentanyl Fentanyl's fentanyl is revolutionary in this because the stuff is just so potent. Like a tiny amount of this is mm-hmm. we real strong. So like before, you know, years back we had marijuana, these big old bales of marijuana. You know, c- you know, shipping container of marijuana is only so much weed. And then we got like cocaine and heroin, which is stronger. And then but now fentanyl and then crystal meth and then fentanyl is like you know it's a tiny amount so. You know one container if you had if you had a whole container packed with fentanyl that'd just be colossal amounts, but it's 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 distributed around different different containers yeah. and stuff. but the amounts that are coming through now, so you look really the big changes have been i mean this is gradually building up and it's building up and it's very close the build up of these amount of uh synthetics coming through Mexico is very closely correlated to the drug overdose deaths in the United States. I mean, look at the numbers. And, and this, you know, the, the overdose epidemic in the United States is, is absolutely nuts. I think, you know, we know about this, but still, I don't think it's had the political impact that it will have, considering the scale of it. When I was first doing this, you know, 2000, I first started covering this stuff. It was like 15,000 overdose deaths a year in the United States, between legal and illegal drugs. 2021 107,000 so like eightfold increase You know like really, you know yeah. really
0: it's 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 Completely spiraled out of control.
1: Yeah, and there's no end in sight. Yeah Um. Sevenfold increase eightfold increase <laughs> huge increase hundred and fifty thousand to hundred seven thousand um uh, and you can see this, this particularly, it's accelerated particularly really big figures the last couple of years, right as you've had the increases in, in the in the synthetic coming through Mexico. Now, the amount of fentanyl, you suddenly saw a shift. So if you saw a change from more crystal meth and cocaine, and they're both like uppers in terms of drugs, and more fentanyl than heroin, which are both kind of downers. And then, I mean, the numbers, I mean, again, I mean, you know, people, when people do talk about terms of like weapons of mass destruction, I can see, a, you know, you can see a truth to that or, or poison coming over the border because it is colossal amounts mm-hmm. of fentanyl coming over. And now the lethality is like, how much, how much can they move? It's so easy now, it's like, you know, it doesn't matter how many, you, know, you don't need to worry about how many fields you've got and how many fields are being crop sprayed. You can just churn this stuff out, churn this stuff out, churn this stuff out. Um, it seems like they've you know saturated the market now, or like a, what you know we, you know what when, when you have one hundred seven thousand dying a year, does that kill off addicts and there's less addicts left to die? Um, but you know we're, we're we're in the eye of the storm right now. I don't know if they are. I don't know if it is just
0: addicts anymore because I mean, the one thing that I don't understand is why fentanyl. Why they're putting that in every drug, they're putting it in marijuana, they're putting in cocaine, they're putting it in meth, they're putting it in ecstasy, they're putting it in MDMA, they're, they're, it's, you know, I hate to say it this way, but, you know, as a kid growing up, kids are going to experiment. They are. It's just going to mm-hmm. happen, you know. Nowadays, you can't, you can, there is no experimenting with drugs because you might, you there's a good possibility you're going to overdose because everything seems to be laced with fentanyl, you know. And so, it's it's. I don't think it's just these <clears throat> uh, addicts dying anymore. I think it's it's first time users. It's people experimenting for the first time with particular drugs. It's, you know, in in like we talked about before too. They're weaponizing it. They're. I'm seeing more and more cops being killed or overdose. Uh, from fentanyl, you know, being used as a weapon.
1: Yeah, I mean, the, the, it's a very good question about like why they're putting it in cocaine. You know, they put in heroin because people people want the heroin, they want the buzz. You know, you talk to people who, who use fentanyl. You know, one guy who, who was a guy who's fentanyl described it was kind of the high you're looking for if you're kind of you know if you're an opioid addict, if you got the addiction to that drug, that's the high you're looking for. Uh, you know, and then they put it in heroin and, 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 and you know, starts it's, it's better, more money for them and people are wanting that high. But then it turns up in cocaine. And then you get cases of people who are kind of calling up cocaine. There's a case in New York, a case in Texas. People calling, phoning up lines to get cocaine. And they're like, you know, musicians, people with money, you know, kind of, you know, yuppies who are still like, you know, buying some cocaine. And... Uh, and you, know, you get it, and they die of overdoses of fentanyl. It's like, why? What, what's the incentive? So I heard, like, you know, asking a lot of people this, why are they doing this? You know, um, I haven't got a good answer. You know, one theory somebody put out was you're messing up rivals. You're deliberately, deliberately messing up rivals. You know, you know your rivals have got a load there, and you're throwing some, some hmm. fentanyl in there, cocaine, kind of made, feeding them that to mess them up. Possibly doesn't really kind of, don't really bite that much. Another one is like cross-contamination. That like, you're in a lab, it's kind of some messy lab and you've got some fentanyl kicking around uh, and you've got some cocaine kicking around you cross-contaminate. They don't really buy that. Um, But like, yeah, I mean, deliberately poisoning people. um, You know, who's doing that and why? I I don't see the cartels are interested in making money on selling drugs doesn't make a lot of uh i mean i asked that question of like you know would it stop them do they you know is fentanyl bad for their business eventually? you you killing off your user base i do think think just thinking short term they may make big money uh but it doesn't seem like they they obviously want to poison you know like you know throw poison out there um so yeah it, it's kinda, it's kind of it's kind of nuts uh, and we're kind of at a pretty Pretty crazy thing. So we start to look at like, how can you deal with this? How can you deal with the with the level of fentanyl now? And is it going to force, I think it, I think this, this might become a hotter political issue if it doesn't change. Are people going to change their practices and like are you going to force people to say we're going to stay away from these these kind of pills now? Is there going to be some kind of reaction in the population? Um, is, you know, they talk about harder, much harder punishments and charging, they started doing this now, charging drug dealers with murder. And and start going back to kind of big incarceration, and maybe if that happens, we'll see if if that really happens or not. You know that, but uh, but yeah, I mean, what what are the options there for for actually for changing? It? It's a pretty hard situation right now.
0: Yeah, <clears throat> I mean, I
1: th- I would think you would start with the border, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, I mean, absolutely, and and like I mean, look, you know, this is, um, you know, it's, it, it uh, you know, the, the, these guys are committing horrific amount of murder both in Mexico. In terms of people they're killing with bullets and in the United States in terms of people who are dying with overdoses. And this stuff's this stuff's horrific. But would like how how do you the problems with the border is in terms of enforcing and stopping drugs come over the border. So like most of the drugs come over the border, the high-value drugs, come over in vehicles. They used to do a lot of walking marijuana, you know, walking backpacks of marijuana like right over, particularly the Sonora Desert, it was a big area, you walk over with marijuana, a lot of that. Um, but now marijuana kind of markets collapsed. There still is some marijuana coming over, but now it's kind of collapsed because you've legalized marijuana in a bunch of US states. So the, the amount of marijuana now moving over is a lot less than before, because they can grow here. But they don't really, because uh, like walking people over the border with, they called them, call them burros, like donkeys. It's this walk over, used to be like, two different packs, 25-kilo pack or like a 50-kilo pack. Like 25-kilo like or, or double 50-kilo. You walk right over the border with that. Um, and you lose a lot, but you don't care because you're making money and, you know, and it's weed. Mm-hmm. But the high-value drugs go generally in vehicles. There's other different ways you've got, on tunnels, tunnels coming under, catapults. You see, you see the catapults there? Like massive, like military siege, Weapons, like throw, catapults these trucks over the border. I've not seen that one yet. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's crazy. But the the, the big amount, okay, is vehicles. So you look at the the vehicles crossing. And uh, Nuevo Laredo Laredo border, it's about 10,000 trucks a day crossing. Uh, You've got, you know, Juarez, Tijuana's lines of cars all the time. Now, fentanyl, in particular is like very, very potent. You have a small amount. So how many cars can you search? You know, you start looking at this stuff. I mean, you know, they had this, this, this you know, you've had these, these, these border agents there for years or, or customs. And, you know, you talk to a customs guy who's good and, and who's got like a human, and can spot people, look at them, and he's got a good eye for seeing, okay, this guy's nervous, got some... But then you stop a vehicle. Now, that sometimes, you know, they call them trap cars. In, in, in Spanish, they call them clavos. You have secret compartments. it be very good secret compartments sometimes. You've got a lot of very complicated ways of opening them. So you've got to find a car. Sometimes you've got to, like, tear the car apart. Now, you, you tear a car apart. It's the wrong car. But not just the, the fact, okay, you're tearing apart the wrong car. It's just like you've got your agents doing that, spending, like, an hour, two hours messing around with a car. Other vehicles are coming through. When you you know you do find, okay, you find you bust a load, okay. Great, you bust a load. Someone's there, they'll bust a load and they'll say to the person, okay, you want to do 20 years, or do we follow you to where you're dropping it off and then we'll go and bust them? Kind of classic tactic. But even when they bust a load, and they kind of bust them, do the paperwork, whatever, other loads are coming through. Now, I talked to one guy who's in prison in the United States in North Carolina trafficking cocaine and he I said how much of your cocaine did you lose it was a couple of years ago Remember I, I, I thought maybe they lost half of it they could still make huge amounts of money he's like we lost about 20% so for every one load that is getting bust you've got four loads coming through so how much how much are you going to really stop this stuff and it's so potent and there's so much money being made and they can afford to lose it. So they're still busting a bunch of this stuff now, but are you really going to stop it? The only way to, you really would stop it is if you really wanted to kind of just transform the border completely, but you got half a trillion dollars worth of legitimate trade going back and forth over the border.
0: Yeah. You so, know, it almost seems like it would be in their best interest to just produce it here. Produce it in the United States. Yeah. I mean, I I don't know what compounds make fentanyl, but yeah. you know.
1: Yeah. I mean, they, they, they might find a way, I mean, right now, because, I mean, like, there are people who are bringing, you know, some bits into the into United States, but right now, the it's easier for them to bring it, I mean, the, the real big industrial amounts they can make in Mexico and shift it over here, and that's working for them. Um, now, I mean, maybe, I mean, if you could have some new technology where you could kind of, like, have something so that, like, whenever you went over the border, you could detect drugs in a vehicle but it, it, it's like practically to try and be able to shut down the border and stop the fentanyl coming across. I mean, like how come they haven't been able to stop drugs coming to the United States for the last 40 years? Yeah. Um, and unless you want to search every single vehicle, you know, like strip down and rip up every single vehicle, which means that nobody can get across and, and trade shuts down.
0: I guess it's just not that bad yet, you know. <laughs> but. Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean it is I mean it is bad. It is it's terrible. I mean it's, it's horrible. Terrible. It is terrible. hundred and seven thousand overdose deaths, that is that is nuts. Um, yeah, yeah, that is nuts.
0: You know, it's I don't know what it's gonna take, I don't know what the number is, I don't know you know how bad it's gonna be, but it's it's they're gonna have to do something. Maybe mm. that is shut the border down completely. Who knows? But or check mm. every car. I don't, they're going to have to hire a ton of border patrol agents for that and do a major expansion. But I mean, it it just seems like nothing is being done right now. Yeah, yeah, nothing. You know, and like it. It doesn't even seem like it's. It, it just seems like it's ramping up. Yeah, it's yeah, getting more and more and more is coming and more. Mm. It's becoming more prevalent in the media and more and more overdoses are happening over the years, and it's just, nothing is slowing this down.
1: Yeah, look, look I would say this. Look, I mean, we're in a, a critical situation here. I mean, I, I mean I, I've been kind of shadowing this for years, you know, like, I mean, 10 years ago, um, and, and I could see, you know, when I start, when I first started doing, working on drug cartels, you know, I arrived in Mexico in 2000, started reporting in 2001, and then I started reporting, 2004, four five. I started reporting these, like, turf war happened on the border with texas not like a young reporter um and then there's, there's kind of crazy stuff started happening i was like Fuck it, this is a pretty pretty kind of kind of crazy story uh i interviewed this, this guy who then became the police chief and they asked him when he became the police chief and said are you uh are you scared he said, i'm not scared the corrupt people are scared and he was shot six hours afterwards damn and that was a kind of in a time. It was in a story. It was kind of interesting story regionally. It was a. I was working for the Houston Chronicle out of Houston, Texas, and it was like, okay, wow. Well, I'm like, um, you know, this is interesting. This is you know, this is a kind of big story. The, the, the Texas newspaper started having a bit of a turf battle about that, and then this spread. And I was covering like Sinaloa in 2008, 2009, and I remember in 2008, and I was covering this this scene of a massacre, and there had been okay, two massacres in this in this little village. Bullets are still over there. And the residents of the village were just leaving the village in a convoy of trucks. I was seeing this scene of this like convoy of trucks. And it was like, wow, this is like surreal, this is like refugees. You know, something big is happening in this country. It's going to tear this country apart. When I wrote, you know, pitched for the first book about this. And like, you know, a couple of years later, yeah, you know, things I was wondering, you know, am I overstating this? Am I kind of exaggerating this thing? It's just a bunch of gangsters. No, no, it is destabilizing the country. So you kind of see this stuff creeping up and kind of getting bigger. Um, Now, I would say now, and and I I, I, I agree, I mean, I I don't want to say, like, say that there's nothing you can do about this stuff. I mean, human beings, we could do stuff. You know, we put men on the moon. You know, we build, you know, we found, you know, hospitals and... Um, you know, we can we can create and and do amazing things. So how come we can't deal with these problems? How come our politics is broken?
0: Yeah, it's it's it's. When I say there's no effort, I mean it's. Yeah, we're not going to declare them a terrorist organization. Yeah, we're not going to do anything about the border. Mm. We're not going to unleash our border patrol agents. Yeah, yeah. We're going to put all these stipulations on them and paint them out to be. I don't know, bad people. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. nothing is happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nothing's sure. happening. Yeah. It doesn't no, seem like there's any pressure being put on the Mexican government. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't, there's a lot of different angles that mm. I, th- I feel like they could, they could go with here that, you know, other than just the border, but nobody has done
1: anything. No, I agree. I agree. I think, I think uh, I would say, um, you know, we we have we have to try and come together and work out. Now, I would say it's like it's a really horrible situation, and it's not an easy button which is going to make this go away. Mm-hmm. But we have to kind of think about long term stuff because we have to think about our children, grandchildren. You know, it, you know people who have got like kids now who are one. What's going to be like when they're fifteen, twenty? Um, you know, what's it like for for, for the people's grandchildren grow up with this? So I, I would say. Um, and look at like I would say you have to you know politics is kind of broken and also the government you have a lot of these different government departments with different agendas it's like how do you create a unified policy for dealing with this how do you look at like uh, and it is a question I think of of the United States security you know and being the neighbour because a lot of these things tie together why do people flee Mexico flee Central America because of the violence um why do you know like you suddenly get the pentagon involved because the pentagon started seeing um you know very very heavily armed groups right over the border um you know, so you've got really different things i would say um you have to look at the law enforcement point of view uh, you have to look at the kind of crime prevention then you have to look at like stopping giving them money so, yeah, looking at the law enforcement point of view, it has to be, yeah, I mean, you, you've got to take this seriously. Um, I, I think I think in terms of, of, of like, how US law enforcement, I think with a lot of people, a lot of skilled people that have come through the DEA and stuff, you need to think, look at it more of, like, this is organised crime and how this organised crime is a risk to us in the long term. And how we've got to run and hit them hard and break them up now before... They start doing in the U.S. what they're doing in Mexico, because in a few years that could come. Mm -hmm. I mean, I would worry about that—not just about the border, but about how they're building up in cities. I'm talking to a guy from um, MS-13 in Honduras, and he was running—he'd been running a clique up in Maryland—and they had uh, these cliques are like chapters. What's a clique? A clique is like a chapter of the gang. Call them a clique or la clique. So the the, the chapter might have uh, 30 to 100 members in a a chapter. But then they have what they call sympathizers or sympathizers. They have sympathizers who are like the periphery members. And they'd have like 500 sympathizers. And they got a lot of these things like schools up in Maryland they had a bunch of these like recruited members and sympathizers around booting up there and then started doing things like shakedowns inside the immigrant community. So they started doing shakedowns, but then they started recruiting people. These are MS-13s, the Salvadoran gang originally. Then they grew up, you know, Hondurans and then they suddenly got Dominicans and Cubans. They said They had like Chinese members. Chinese immigrants are recruited in, in his MS13. Cliques. They have Chinese members. Yeah, like Chinese members these m MS13 cliques. Up in, the, like, what's become like growing up in the, in the um, on the west coast, so in the east coast there. So the, you know, I think I think thinking hard about like um, organized crime. Um, I mean, the United States historically fought very hard about organized crime, um, with RICO and this kind of thing. Because honestly, people are under the danger of organized crime, what it can mean. And I would I concern, I would put that as an alert in terms of the, uh, in terms of that, in terms of like uh, law enforcement. But in terms of reducing um, the demand, I mean, may, maybe, you know, it does have to be very hard, you know, with fentanyl. I mean, I don't know the answer, but maybe it is true, you need very hard sentences for fentanyl dealers at uh, local level. Uh, and but also the work on rehab. Why are so many people now like using this stuff? Like, what's happened to society that so many people are now becoming like you know have got you know opioid problems? Um, I mean, it's a, it's a mix of stuff, yeah. You know, you got to, you know sometimes there's people who have come you know vets who have come back and been prescribed mm-hmm. drugs and then ended up buying stuff in the black market and, and buying pills out there. Um there's some real deep problems there. How like can we get like fix and have people's helps so they don't have this like this like wanting this this amount of drugs. That's a good point. It's a it's
0: gonna be a tough problem to solve if it ever does get solved. <laughs> but let's take a quick break. I want to take a minute to tell you about Vigilance Elite Patreon. Patron support is what makes this show possible and gives me the ability to bring these one-of-a-kind stories to the public. Go to patreon.com slash vigilance and support The Sean Ryan Show today. All right, we're back from the break and uh, you were just telling me about a gunfight that happened along the, was it the Arizona border?
1: Yeah, yeah, sure. So to get a, uh, an idea of what this cartel control looks like and the way they're controlling information on the Mexican side of the border, you can look at this uh, this one town on the Mexican side of the Arizona-Sonora border, and there was a gunfight in 2019 when a group of cartel uh, hitmen, about 60, came into the city from over the line, over the state Mexican state lines, in Chihuahua state, and, and came in to try and attack and seize the territory over this town in Mexico, and the local cartel Sicarios responded, and there was this crazy gunfight. I mean, it's impossible to know the true number of dead, but it could well have been over 30, according to witnesses I talked to. So to get a sense, though, what really happened, I mean, the, the border was shut down on the night of this gunfight, you know, in this small border town, they shut down the border. But the cartel was very concerned about controlling that information and they're not going out there. there have been such a severe gunfight. Why? Because they, you, you go see this small town on the border where they're moving drugs through, moving people through. And you can see a certain neighborhood with a bunch of cartel houses. Some quite obvious big houses that stand out in the kind of dirt streets and some of these real big houses. There are various houses they use like safe houses or cartel properties. Now, if there's a big noise about a gunfight on the border with 30 dead and it became a big story on like Fox News and stuff, that creates heat. Okay. So the Mexican government's like, okay, hey, what do we do? Send the army in. What options do you have? Send in the military. So the military goes in and it has to bust, you know, break down some doors, and so you've got some houses to bust. So the cartel is interested in trying to keep things down. So what they did is they tell they control the local journalists. And they tell the local journalists, you're not reporting on this, or you're only reporting two dead. Um, we want no information. We're even harassing social media operators in these areas as well. And this was basically hushed up. And, uh, you know, we, we, were there, we, were, we were following this as part of, a, of an investigative series. And I had to go into this town and, and try and deal with the cartel members in this town who you know, first didn't want us filming there and were very aggressive and we tried to try to talk to them, we tried to sit down and talk to these cartel so we only want to film and document this. Is old now. And it's happened now. But still, they're very, very controlling of what can be filmed and what can be said in this town. And that shows kind of some of the motivations and why they're like on top of journalists, why they're harassing journalists. And you see there's one journalist uh, there in this town who, uh, you know, we, we would, talking to him, and we actually got him to help us introduce us to some of these cartel members. But he, uh, he was talking to us about it, and then he started, broke out in tears and said, like, you know, we, we, we can't, can't tell the news here. We've got this, you know, breathing down our necks, you know, we've got the, they're ordering us what we can say and we can't say. And, and you see that with the level of murder of journalists yeah. in Mexico the last 20 years, with more than 150 journalists who have been murdered. And it's often for not, for not doing the cartels. They want to have control of the media, especially in these small towns, in these places, say what they can say, what they can't say. You can say this name of a cartel. You can't say this. You've got to report this massacre. You shouldn't report this. And then, and then can lead to, to murders if anything falls out of line. Or if they see as the reporters working with a different cartel or responding to a different cartel, that can also put them in danger. Man.
0: They're just <laughs> controlling every little aspect. It's, yeah, it's yeah. really... What are some of the... We had talked a little earlier... I think it was last night, actually, at dinner we were talking, and you were just... We were talking about some of the brutality that these guys are doing. We talked about it a little bit today, you know, getting 12-year-olds to cut up bodies. You were talking about a dog yesterday that mm. ate a man's genitals off. Do you want... Can you... What is the point of this, and what are what are some of the most horrific things that you've seen or heard these guys doing? Yeah, yeah, sure. reason I'm asking is I want to paint a picture of just how brutal yeah, these yeah. guys are to the
1: audience. Sure thing, yeah. So I think the kind of public displays of violence. Um, you saw this escalating, and, and it began, okay, if we go all the way back to 2004, and there was, then that year was the de- decapitation in Iraq of, um, by al-Sakawi, al-Qaeda in Iraq, mm-hmm. 2004 or 5, I think 2004. And that was shown um, fully on Mexican TV when we're seeing on Mexican news. And they show that fully that kind of that video and they the Mexican newscast saying, Oh, will show you and it and that had an impact. And that was seen by the cartels. Okay, decapitation. And you start seeing that in in, in Iraq, kind of rise in, in in this kind of terror and violence and decapitation, but using it publicly. Mm-hmm. Then the first time you start seeing it in Mexico was 2006. There was one incident, the first incident. Where there was some police officers who shot up some cartel guys in Acapulco, and the cartel went and decapitated two of these cops, put their heads on the wall. Like you don't, don't fuck with our guys. So the idea is getting you're kind of copying and seeing this stuff on TV from Iraq and stuff, and like copying this terror. Then there was a. One of the first splatter videos was around this time. It was on a, the one of the first splatter videos back then was on a VHS tape. And they, they 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 interrogate a guy, and at the end of the interrogation, they shoot the guy in the head. And they threw they, they sent it, they sent it by mail back then. They, it was a video that was done from Acapulco. They sent it by mail to, to a newspaper in the United States. They ended up getting, getting getting reported and stuff, and it's kind of showing this kind of. We're using kind of recording stuff on video and doing this stuff, kind of copying this kind of terror tactics mm-hmm. to try and incite terror in our enemies. Now, you then had in Michoacan a guy called Nasario Moreno, El Mas Loco, the maddest one. And he, um, they chopped off five heads. And they rolled them into a disco. And when this came out, I was working again with the news agency AP at the time. And we got sent a video of this from a local stringer of the five heads just sitting on this disco floor. Five decapitated heads. And the TV was like, to come look at this. I was like, wow, this is kind of crazy. He's just like, Oh, we're not gonna put it out on the wire. We're not gonna put that on on our on our wire, meaning our the news agency feed mm-hmm. that like TV, you know, it's a bit too brutal. But one Japanese, funny enough, one Japanese TV company said, oh, we want particularly that video, we want to have that. And it was this idea of terror and it started escalating. So then it was like two heads, five heads, then it became 12 heads, then up 14, 18, and got to that episode of 49 bodies. And it became competing for who could be you know, the, the, the baddest cartel. The way of competing was, was, was having this violence and having this, this kind of public displays of violence and stuff on videos. And you start having this stuff on the internet. Now, initially as journalists, I'll say both as, as, as journalists working for international media reporting on this and the local Mexican media, we didn't know quite how to handle this stuff. It's like report it, you know, pull this stuff out. Then you realize, okay, you, are you speaking for the cartel? Are you only showing their propaganda by doing this stuff? They've they've got a message. Sometimes they have like decapitated heads and a message, you know, on a blanket expressing this stuff. Uh, and then you you know you so you start to get like a bit of a kickback of okay, we shouldn't really report on this. Should we try and? and I remember I remember, but it's kind of sad. I remember one day at, at the AP, and they said, well, we no longer report on episodes of just decapitated heads. Unless there's a very high number or something special, because there's been so many, it's no longer news anymore. So now that it kind of loses that shock value, so nowadays you could hear, oh, there's five decapitated heads in Mexico. It doesn't, you know, you're not going to get, you're going to go, all oh, right. At the time, the beginning, this was something which is really causing yeah. an impact. I would say it kind of reached that public use of violence reached a peak. Around that time, around like 2000, 2012 was the 49 bodies, maybe around, that was the highest number. There was a massacre of 72 people, but that was a bit different. That wasn't a public, you know, the 49 was, we're going to cut, kill 49 people, cut their heads and hands and feet off and dump them in one place. And that was the kind of peak, I think, of that, of the brutality of that very, very public violence. There was a bunch of other incidents, I mean, like they'd cut off a face and sewed onto a, a soccer ball and... And like you know, just cut up bodies and cars in all kinds of different ways you can imagine. But it kind of reached the peak of public violence. It started it kind of lost its shock value, and the press kind of stopped kind of stop reporting on it so much. So you had less of that public violence. Now, one thing I mentioned yesterday, a kind of brutal incident, was you you have a change and you have uh, violence. Then it's a different objective, a kind of policing of local communities, and the cartels, because they're coming like, becoming like warlords and imposing a policing on the populations. So then you're saying like, um, okay, you know, the other cartels saying, saying you know, no one can steal from people's houses, no one can commit rape, Hmm. Um, people can't kidnap. Actually, I went to a, one crime scene where they, they killed some alleged kidnappers and they had like a thing saying like, you know, a sign saying that kidnappers, you can't do that here. Get to work, it's in the lower style, meaning it's like a traffic drugs, work. Don't kidnap people. So they start, because they're, they're, they're kind of the absence of, and the failure of the, of the rule of law, they're becoming like the rule of law, like the warlords and imposing that. Now, what we mentioned last night, which is a very brutal video, was somebody who's accused of rape in a, in a town in the state of Mexico. And uh, they put a dog on 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 his on his genitals and put something and 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 ate his genitals and, and put a video of that and put that video out. Like you can't rape in our territory. Kind of pretty pretty brutal again. Kind of medieval. Yeah. Kind of control. Did they kill him? Not as far as we know. I mean, the guy was left maybe alive, but alive but mutilated.
0: Well, he's not going to reproduce.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so.
0: <clears throat> it's. It seems like, you know, I've interviewed a couple of guys about this stuff. Started with Ed Calderon, then I moved yeah. in to Luis. He actually, he actually recommended you, and then and then now you and it's. It, it seems to be the common theme that they're just getting more brutal, more ruthless, more graphic, you know, and and and, and it seems like they're really trying to, you know, instill that fear into everyone. Local yeah. population, the police, uh, U.S., everybody.
1: Yeah, I mean, I would say like, um, I mean, in some ways, say that very, very public displays of violence kind of in some reached a peak and went down, and a lot of the videos you've seen more recently have been these big shows of firepower. Do so you see an escalation with that? So first of all, you start off with a guy, you know, you have a, you know, five guys with ski masks and AK-47s going, you know, here we are, you know, we're the cartel. And then you kind of have that, you know, make it bigger and have, you know, 20 guys with metal helmets and, and then it becomes 50 guys. And it's like a big, like, film of a convoy of armored vehicles and grenade launchers and everything going, ah, and it becomes bigger and bigger. So mm-hmm. like an escalation in that show of force it becomes like a new thing in terms of the kind of propaganda war. There's also like the carrot as well as the stick. So there's like handing out Goods to the population as well for control. So, like you have, um, you you have like the beginning of COVID. There was like suddenly they were you know suddenly it was like in a pandemic lockdown. Um, They went and started handing out packages to people. And I went to one community where they'd had a handout, and it was a couple of hours from Mexico City. And they'd gone to this, this one village and they just like, you know, bunch of guys driven up in some pickup trucks and they'd handed out everyone a bag of goods. And I talked to a family, you know, a couple of families who, who, who'd received, you know, some of these bags. And they were like, oh, they were good stuff. It was like good, you know, it wasn't cheap sugar. It was good, you know, good labels of sugar and eggs and flour and this kind of thing, kind of basic goods. Now they don't necessarily give it to that many people considering the whole country and the level of population But it has an impact because then they video that stuff and they put that out on video as well they put it out on, 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 the, on the airwaves on the internet And And then that creates a kind of reaction that creates a kind of thing of like saying oh well We're kind of you know, we're good guys as well. So you have a control that way as well you're buying support in the population um, the same way that kind of politicians do as well. Going kind to of give handouts, stuff in Mexico has been a big tradition, mm-hmm. um, and you're kind of portraying yourself as as good guys in a propaganda war.
0: How many cartels are there in Mexico? Estimation.
1: So you have in Mexico, you have you, you've, you've had this this process of fragmentation, so there's more and more. So now you could talk about at least a dozen. Groups, considering cartels, but like from the bigger ones to some of the smaller ones, and then below that a bunch of different factions and groups. But there's different sizes and scales. So there's two now the biggest ones, which are really the bigger size than the rest, which is the Sinaloa cartel and the Jalisco New Generation cartel, and they're the both they're both you know big international organizations with you know with with very very big power.
0: Mm-hmm. But Do they own these little smaller cartels? Are they like so satellites? With,
1: within, within that, you have you have factions of these cartels. So they create like the Sinaloa cartel will have uh, an armed faction called La gente nueva, and there'll be like an armed paramilitary wing which operates in certain areas. Okay. Then you'll have like Los Salasades, which will be a certain family with their own people who like operate and work for the Sinaloa cartel. And within Sinaloa cartel, you've got like Los Chapitos, El Mayo, and these different factions within them. Then the Jalisco New Generation cartel will take over these places and we'll often take over these smaller kind of towns and take over gangs and kind of create them and make them part of their organization. Then, though, you've got below the rung of those two most powerful cartels, you've got a bunch of, of still big, powerful regional forces. So, going across the border, you have the Gulf Cartel, which is still a powerful international organization. The Gulf Cartel, Reynosa, Matamoros. You know, South Texas, and then they'll have people also in a bunch of places around Mexico. You go next, you have the Cartel de Noreste, the Northeast Cartel. Again, a powerful organization, formerly the Setas, they were. They kind of became now the Northeast, they rebranded themselves, the Northeast Cartel. They got a bunch of things, a bunch of guns, a bunch of different stuff operating around the place. You move across, you've got the Juarez Cartel, stroke La Lina operating there. Then you've got more Sinaloa cartel territory, and Jalisco New Generation cartel fighting, but then you've still got the remnants of the, of the Ariana Félix Tejuana cartel there. And then further south, you've got some, some significant organizations. Uh, you've got La Familia Michoacana, which is still operating in, in certain areas. You've still, you've still got, um, you've got these groups called things like Los Rojos, Los Guerreros Unidos, which are quite significant in certain areas. And then you know, sometimes I call some of these groups kind of cartelitos, like like smaller. They kind of operate like cartels, but in a, in an area. You suddenly have um, this group called the Independent Cartel of Acapulco. So they're they're not international. Yeah, they're more like localized. But they're still some of these groups can control several municipalities. But because one of the problems with this fragmentation is, so if you look at the the, 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 the history of this. And you see, you had these big efforts to kind of break some of these cartels. With mixed motivations from above, but they, they were taking out some of these top guys, Arturo Beltran Lever So you had, you know, he was a breakaway from the Sinaloa cartel, the Beltran Lever cartel. Then he gets killed, and you start to fragment and break down. So then you start to get like Los Guerreros Unidos, Los Rojos, and these breakdowns from that. Then you get these kind of like local fights and these little breakoffs. So then you had um, the kind of fragments of the fragments of the fragments, the kind of break off of the break off of the break off. Uh, but then it can be still be these kind of crazy, crazy little organizations. So there was a group there was one guy called El Huero Palayo, with some guy in 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 Guerrero State. He was like twenty, early twenties, maybe, and he had like hundreds of young, you know, kids, teenagers and young kids with AK forty sevens and stuff kind of following him, and he controlled this kind of small bit of territory. Some colleagues uh, were driving that his group was burning vehicles, blockading roads is one of their strategies, one of their tactics were. When they wanted to kind of stop convoys and stuff, and, and his journalists I knew went up there, and they got stopped, and it was like, a hundred of these kind of young, oh. teenagers, you know, these kind of crazy kids basically, uh, some of them with guns and stuff, and they they took their cameras, laptops, one of the vehicles, cleaned them out. Um, and one colleague of mine, he said he had, he had his camera, and, he had, and the guy goes, give me your ID. I go, "Go give, give me your wallet. So first of all, he tried to, try to show his ID, and then he was like, and he was like, one, he was kind of seeing his kids. But like, so you get, so, so it's part of the problem, it drives violence, because then you get these kind of crazy, fragmented groups, and then they're like watching roads and fighting each other, and fighting over like dumb, very local shit.
0: I, I got a question. Yeah. So it it sounds like, so you have a, the big entity. You have the Sinaloa cartel mm. and the what do, the new generation cartel. Yeah. And then you have all these basically sounds like subsidiary companies of yeah. the cartel. Do these subsidiary companies do they get along or are they rivals too? This sounds very tribal.
1: Yeah, yeah. So you got a a, a bunch of shifting alliances. Do
0: among- you know what I, do you know what I'm saying? So if you have the Sinaloa cartel here yeah. and then you have all these Subsidiary companies underneath of it, and then subsidiary companies. Do these subsidiary companies get along? Do they know, like, hey, we're both under the Sinaloa okay. umbrella, yeah, yeah, So we don't conduct violence with each other. We conduct violence with subsidiary companies of the New Generation Cartel or the Zetas or
1: yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, it's a very, very good, good point. I see, I see exactly where you're coming from, and the answer is no, they don't. They can, they can. So you get violence among. Different, like localized gangs who are still working for a bigger organization, and some of these groups are constantly fighting amongst themselves.
0: So there can be so there can be rivals within,
1: yeah, well, they, yeah, the, the entity, intra cartel fighting. So as
0: is efficient and as effective they are, they still there's still a lot of yeah, it, it's a very inefficiencies and in, in yeah, the, totally within the organization yeah. a lot of
1: uh, yeah, a lot a lot, a lot of uh, disruptors. I mean, uh, they're they're powerful. They're not all powerful, and they're, they're messy things. Um, you know, it's very messy, kind of whirlwind of this kind of world of organized crime and these figures rising and falling and stuff. I mean, they, they're exercising immense power, um, but at the same time, very unstable. Re- reason I'm asking is because in Afghanistan,
0: what we found in the earlier days um, was tribes. We would go in, try to get intelligence from a tribe, and what we found is they were given bad intel because mm. so there were so many rivalries going on you know for hundreds of years between these different tribes that US would bomb villages or 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 targets or whatever it, whatever it is you know vehicles because simply because this tribe who had a rivalry with this tribe which we didn't know but they're basically saying hey this is who you're looking for they're responsible for x mm-hmm. y and z but the only reason they're telling us that is because of the 200-year
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. rivalry
0: that's been going on. Yeah, yeah. And then they just had the U.S. take care of their enemy. I could see that exact problem. Mm. Say we did declare the cartels a, a a terrorist organization. I could I can see us falling into that trap again, where it's it's not it's not solid intelligence that we're gathering. We're basically just finishing these guys
1: is, you know, Yeah, I mean, some of the violence going back a couple of generations, it was like about feuds, Um and are you talk, you know, some of the older guys, what, what the violence was like in, it was in the 60s and 70s, and it was often feuds, family against family stuff, Um, Los Sanchez, Los Hernandez, these like families in these valleys, and it's like, you know, that they, 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 one of them um robbed a woman, it's a classic one, they robbed a girl from another family, and then, 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 so they went there and they killed a bunch of the other family because of that. And so they went back and there was like a feud going on back and forth between them. And some of these feuds are still around. So then now there's people becoming like part of these cartels and stuff, but they still like, you know, hate each other going back for some time. But another kind of weird thing with the violence is um, you had, so in that port of Manzanillo, you got both the Sinaloa cartel and the Jalisco New, New Generation Cartel operating and they're both the biggest producers of fentanyl, of synthetic drugs. But a guy told me that actually the Sinaloa cartel is paying the new generation cartel for passage of its synthetics through Helisco Sinaloa. At a high level, they're working together to smuggle drugs. Even though the same cartels are fighting a full-on war over in Zacatecas. And even though they're lower down guys, are fighting over like selling crystal meth at these like little selling points around the area. And it's kind of hard to get, you know, know, your head around it. It's like you you think about something for a long time. How come? But it's like they're working in kind of weird ways. They can be conducting a war in one place. And then they can be like some guys can just sit down and do business. Okay, I want to transport a bunch of... uh, a bunch of ingredients, a bunch of fentanyl through your territory, okay, it's how much it's going to cost. And they can make money. I mean, another, like another weird example of how this, this stuff goes on, I was talking to, I went to see the trial of El Chapo in New York, and his, the mort enemy of Chapo being Beltran Levo, this, this guy I mentioned before. El Chapo, Beltran Levo, the real hard rivalry. And I got to know the lawyers of El Chapo. And I said, uh, how did you get your case? And he said, uh, one of the Beltran Lever brothers introduced us to El Thought so These guys are maybe mortal enemies, but they're recommending lawyers to each other. So there's a, just a, it's just a weird thing when you try and get into this, like how it's really working at top levels. And, and how there's money uh, being changed hands and, and people can still get on and cooperate and so forth, even when they kill each other and have wars with each other.
0: I don't understand it at all. It's it's you know when when you look at the fentanyl crisis in the US and all of the stuff that these guys control and then you hear about I mean that that sounds like a complete disaster, you know, yeah, yeah. to be honest with you, but when you when you when you see that it just it shows you how inefficient the Mexican government is. It shows mm-hmm. how inefficient that the us border is yeah and and how inefficient the us is at fighting this even canada you know what i mean you have mm-hmm. you have organizations that are working together who hate each other who are killing each other nobody seems to get along and they're still that successful they're still making yeah you know trillions of dollars by yeah. human trafficking fentanyl and 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 dozens of cartels you know yeah. and it, it's it's
1: I mean, like I mean, the amount of it's like making all this money, and at the same time, you know, you kill you know thirty five thousand murders in a year officially, in Mexico, um, and of those, we don't know exactly. It could be seventy percent, seventy five percent, a cartel related in some way. So that many murders, that many of these guys being killed, um, all the time, and yet they keep it keeps on going. So yeah, it's it's kind of crazy how this this come, this comes about and, and how things have got this messed up. Uh, and, and yeah, I must say, it's got to rethink. It's got to try and kind of figure out. Um, you know, this comes at the time when politics is broken, so it's kind of frustrating because politicians are not really solving anything. They're not pragmatic about how do we try and this is a problem. How do we try and deal with it? Now, one thing, um, it's a different country. And something that I just went down to report on was in El Salvador with the gang situation. It might give a sense of how things might be in the future in Latin American countries. Hmm. So, in El Salvador, they've had a real problem with gangs for decades, basically since the Civil War of El Salvador, which was 1980 to 1992. After that, you had a gang problem. It went from civil war to gangs, and it was connected. So, you had guys coming back from the Civil War who were like veterans and you know, you know, either they fought in the guerrillas or they fought in the military. And what do we do now? We just join the gangs. And you had refugees who joined gangs up in Los Angeles and got deported and went down. So you had these crazy gangs, incredible extortion, crazy murder. And they're not powerful, not like the Mexican cartels. They don't have this kind of level of control. They're generally these kind of small neighborhood gangs, but they still managed to make, most people pay extortion payments, and they're still carrying out a horrific level of murder. Now you've got this president called Nai Bukele, who I interviewed in 2017. He became president 2019. 2019, he became president. Um, uh, and then he, last year, he, he's accused, and I believe this accusation, he first made a truce with the gangs to bring the murder rate down. With plausible deniability over that truce. So you kind of had these kind of gangs who were still operating, but the murder level was down and they were kind of still around there. And at the same time, he's moving the military in and bolstering the military and so forth. Then in March 27th, 2021, he declared a state of emergency following the kind of breakdown of the truce, likely. A sudden explosion of violence, he ordered a state of emergency. And he sent the military and the police into the neighbourhoods and just did mass arrests. Between March and now, they arrested 64,000 people in a country of 6 million. It's about 1% of the population. It would be like in the United States, in nine months, detaining more than 3 million people. 3.3 million people. Imagine that in the United States. And he locked them up, talked to family members. They were like, no communication with their, with their sons, husbands, who were in prison. Didn't know if they were still alive. You know, mass incarceration. Very, very harsh. There's no way about no two ways about it. Very, very harsh. However, the majority of people support it. The gangs have been decimated. Now, can they sustain that? Uh, I mean, obviously, there's, there's people crying out, Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, U.S. Congress, you know, Congress representatives, uh, human rights disaster there. But it's been, it's decimated the gang structure. Hmm. So that might be the shape of the way things will go in Latin America. Maybe in Mexico in the future you will get, you are seeing a bolstering of the military, like bigger, bigger bolstering of the military. Now Mexico's a messed up situation, and the cartels are so strong and corruption is so deep. But that might be the way, whether we like it or not, that might be the future we're looking at. Interesting. More authoritarian governments.
0: Yeah, that is. Uh, that's 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 interesting. When, when going back to the beheadings, you know, yeah. was, uh, they took a thing out of ISIS's, you know, playbook yeah. or Al Qaeda's or whoever they saw behead, um, and then it's and then it's. Uh, you made it sound like it turned into a competition. Yeah. Between, is it? What's the point of the competition? Is it really just? I, I would say cartel you, leaders, yeah, no, chest would, pounding, wanting to be the most ruthless, or is there is there a point to it other than ego, or is it just ego?
1: Yeah, no, I would say there is. I would say there's a logic to it. So, like, if you're if you're a cartel, you know, it, you know, you, you you understand war and conflict. Mm-hmm. Let's just say, you know, Sean Ryan, you're given the job of being a cartel leader, controlling a chunk of Mexico, okay, and you've got. 50 guys under you in your particular territory. And you've got a rival cartel who's also trying to compete for that territory. And you've got a civilian population. And you've got military. You've got to deal with a bunch of stuff. So you're attacking their people. Now, you've got to send a message out to different people. You've got to send like terror out to anybody who betrays you or anyone who's opposing you you know we're gonna not only kill you, we're gonna we're gonna gonna, gonna terrify you. Mm-hmm. But also you're speaking to the young recruits. Who's the toughest cartel here? Who's gonna win this turf battle? Do you want to join them or join us? And look at us, we're on top. No okay. And you're sending a message out to informants, to like um, the population. Like I'm not gonna I'm not gonna snitch on these people. Now, if you look at, again, I mean, the logical of war, um, you know, you had in the Guatemalan civil war, trying to control, like, counterinsurgency tactics. How do we control a population? And, you, you know, you had some of this, there was uh, some, I mean, I looked at some of the counterinsurgency manuals in the School of the Americas. Some of the stuff taught by the United States to officers in these militaries who ended up defecting and joining cartels.
0: Mm.
1: It's like, how do we control populations to get rid of an insurgency? So you've got, okay, a village, you've got insurgents in a village. Um, in Guatemala, okay, go in there. It was like, we've got to make sure none of you in the village will join the guerrillas. So we're going to behead people, you know, look at this, hang up, leave bodies, mm-hmm. terrorize the population to try and stop them joining the guerrilla force. And those tactics, kind of, some of those tactics, kind of bled through, kind of led into this weird hybrid conflict that we see today. Are they? Are you seeing them? Because you'd also said
0: they do kind of humanitarian work where they hand yeah. out free stuff. You know, are you seeing this stuff happen simultaneously? Where they instill fear and yeah, try to win over the population with hearts and minds type yeah, operations. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Simu- happening simultaneously. Absolutely yeah, How actually. does the how does the civilian population
1: respond to that? It, it's it's a mixed it's a mixed bag. Um you've got like you know, there's areas of Mexico where the, where the, the these gangsters are more deep rooted, like the countryside of Sinaloa, where people are basically being kind of um considered themselves in a way kind of more kind of bandit type territories. for for, for generations who don't really have much respect for the government in Culiacán or the government in Mexico City or Washington, it's all like faraway governments for them. They're kind of broken off and the cartels are like local power people. So for some of these people, especially if you're a young man in these places, it's like, okay, it's like, I'm actually responding to the power and, and the government and I'm going to join that local militia. But then sometimes the cartels will have taken over new territories um, particularly urban areas. They'll go into urban areas and then some of them will, they'll vary. Some of them will be more predatory and go in and be like, okay, we're going to go through and just start kidnapping, get a list of everybody. Who's got money in this town? Bang, kidnap, 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 kidnap. You know, sure they have all got a palace. And then, you know, everyone's going to hate them. But then a, a rival cartel will come in and say, okay, you know, you've been terrorized by this, these scumbags. We're going to come in and save you. And so then you see this kind of back and forth where these kind of like, some of these are called like self-defense squads, out of defense us, who then convert into cartels as well, kind of back and forth over these areas. Um, so yeah, it's been like that shifting. I mean, you, you've seen about the, out, the the self-defense forces. You've seen some images of them. You had a bunch of, you know sometimes we're like legitimate guys, lime farmers who are like, we don't, we don't want to pay shakedowns to these cartels anymore and they'll kind of rise up and, you know a bunch of us with guns and we're going to fight the cartels ourselves, and then they kind of rise up and it's kind of a nice story but then you realize that some of these guys who are meant to be the good guys were also <laughs> <Damn. Damn. laughs> really traffic so so but I mean Afghanistan's an interesting um, comparison I mean very very different, but I think it's in some ways that kind of 21st century weird hybrid armed conflict uh, and you see elements that you can compare
0: it is I, I do think there's a high probability of that happening. If if we ever did declare that a mm. terrorist organization and foreign forces went in there, I could totally see us fall for that again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's 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 yeah. Well,
1: what's what do you got coming up next? Um, I got a bunch of I got a bunch of projects. Um, We've got a, uh, a trial, you know, very interesting trial of the former one of the former top officials in Mexico on trial for drug trafficking in the United States. So that will really look at the kind of official corruption. We had the trial of El Chapo, and that was like you know building up to the El Chapo trial. Um, it was kind of building up for years to kind of go for the ultimate kingpin, and then now we're going to go kind of going after actually a, a corrupt official. Um, So that's going to be very interesting to see what comes out of that. Um, I've been looking at a a TV series based on one of the biggest US operations on a cartel over decades and kind of breaking it down, um, kind of getting with some of the players, um, both in the law enforcement side and in the cartel side and seeing really how that kind of played out back and forth. When's that coming out? Yeah, we're still building that one up now, like developing the sources and developing that series, but that's something I'm... Working on hard. Do you think it'll be out this year? I mean, God willing, that'd be great if it is. Yeah, it, <laughs> oh, you know, right. We'll see. It's, it's, it's a big project. It's a big yeah. project. It's like a, a like basically operation, like a task force, a US task force. Okay. And and we're kind of getting in with you know the big players they had and the, the whole judicial process and the protected witnesses and really kind of drilling down on that operation. And and still looking at stuff. I've been up on the the border a lot recently, uh, looking at some of the. Uh, I mean, the asylum seekers, uh, the smuggling gangs, you know, so we obviously had a a kind of a lot of back and forth, a big hot political issue over the asylum seekers, which now looks like the Biden administration is now going back to the the Trump ideas of like uh, kicking asylum seekers back uh, because the asylum system is basically collapsing because of the numbers. Interesting. Um, so basically, what you have with that is you have, uh, I mean, you've seen you've seen this increase over the years. So let's see, what, what it is, is you have um, people arriving at the border and saying, I'm going to claim political asylum in the United States. And more and more people have understood over the years that they can do this. You know, 20 years ago, people didn't really understand that you could go from a conflict in... You know, from violence in in whatever your country, you know, they can be quite poor and educated people. Do this kind of run run from the conflict? They're going to just come to the United States and just try and sneak over the border. But they realise there's kind of a lot of efforts by things like the uh, UN Refugee Agency, different groups to say you can ask for a political asylum. So people start to realise they can do this, and they come and arrive at the US border and, and make an asylum claim. Now, I talk to a lot of these people on an individual basis, and I'm sympathetic to their, their life stories. I mean, they've got brutal life stories, you know, many of them. They've been, you know, they, they've run from violence in Mexico, run from violence in Honduras, El Salvador, Brazil, Jamaica, uh, Venezuela, bunch of these countries. But because more and more people have been asking, the asylum system itself has basically collapsed. You got 2 million back cases. Wow, 2 million. Yeah like nigh on two million back cases. A lot lot of them has really escalated the last couple of years. So then you start getting pushing back to like five year waiting lists to even see the case. So a lot of what Trump was really doing, if you look at a lot of what Trump was doing on the border, a lot of the policy was really about trying to stop this rising, rising asylum, asylum cases. So he was trying to do this and was like, and then he'd get kicked back from the courts. He'd say, you know, say, oh, you know I, I um, want to say you can't, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kick you out uh, via, I'm going to use a pandemic measure to kick you out. Or I'm going to say you can't apply for asylum in the United States because you fled Honduras, so why didn't you apply for asylum in Guatemala or Mexico while you're applying here? Or you know, trying to make, trying to change president to do this, mm-hmm. and you have to kind of kick back from the courts And Biden came in, was like, "Oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna roll this back, and we're not gonna, are gonna get rid of all the was Trumps on the border." The reality, uh, and I think Biden is very evasive talking about this because Biden doesn't want to um, offend the base or offend the people who are saying you we know, we want asylum claims. But like, what the, uh, what the. Uh, Biden is doing really now is kind of going back to these same trump Trump measures looking for ways just to stop this without really changing the fundamentals just looking for a way to stop people applying for asylum because the numbers are so big Wow I had no idea it was that yeah that big yeah and a lot of what the back and forth I think is about right now I mean you've got you still got the um, undocumented migrants coming over mm-hmm. or or, or the, you know the, the, the uh, undocumented migrants illegal immigrants you know we can, about the language, but like um, we still got a lot of people going over who want to just you know pay smugglers, get through the border, work. But what's really changed, in the real big crisis, I think a lot of this back and forth is about that. It's kind of a, it's kind of a, a, a complicated issue. I don't think really the um, it's come across clearly what that debate's about. Maybe in a lot of the reports, particularly because um, the language, like you know Biden, they don't want to really explain explain that. Mm-hmm. Um, because they don't, they want to kind of don't want to, but they, they, re, I think they understand practically that that the US is not going to receive this amount of asylum claims. Wow, what? Yeah. <laughs> oh man, what? What else do you got coming? That's a lot. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, uh, plenty more stuff. So I've been, I've been. Um, working a lot on a on a on a sub stack on doing a lot of my own stories. Over the years I've been working a lot for for big media outlets, Time magazine, New York Times. Um but I've got a lot on uh, doing a lot of my own own material on this on this substack. I'm gonna link your
0: substack yeah, yeah. in the in the description. So
1: appreciate yeah It'll so also I'm,
0: be in the newsletter and yeah. all the other media that we have.
1: So yeah, I got I've got a bunch more stories in that coming. I've I've already done like a bunch of stories then on, on all this fentanyl um, migrant smugglers Asylum, um, the Obidio the, Guzman, the, the Sinaloa cartel stuff. I got some more stories coming up. I got some stories about pirates in the Gulf really? of Mexico.
0: In the Gulf of Mexico. Yeah,
1: I just have already done the research on that story. I'm to write that up. Basically, it's some uh, um, a, a bunch of. I mean, it's kind of cra- one of these crazy side stories. A bunch of uh, um, oil installations there. Um, there's, there's pirates robbing oil installations. What they'll do is they'll often go onto these oil rigs, oil platforms, and there'll only be like six of these guys, but they're, you know, six guys with AK 47s, and they'll steal a bunch of the oxygen gear, which is this like quite high, expensive, high end oxygen gear, which are worth, you know, several thousand dollars each one. These kind of, uh, they call them autonomous. Oxygen equipment. Mm-hmm. And they'll, they'll steal like 100 packs of this um, and make away. And I talked to one guy who was who was on one of these oil rigs when it happened and they started having a... There was a couple of Marines there on the oil rig, but most of the Marines would take 45 minutes to get there from a different place. So these guys knew they had like 20 minutes basically. Um, so they did it, did the robbery, got away. And they have been doing that a bunch of times. They've always been robbing the fishermen. And... The Mexican government's basically hushing a lot of this up because it's kind of bad publicity. Mm-hmm. So the Mexican oil company as well was kind of, you know wouldn't let the, the workers talk about this. Um, so that's one, one crazy story. Um, another one uh, about a publish, uh, which I was mentioning to you about, was about a bunch of um, uh, healers with with psychedelics. Uh, Aote Napa have been arrested in Mexico. You know, while all this fentanyl's coming through, they're arresting these guys with psychedelic sites so in uh, Ayahuasca. Pardon, ayahuasca. They're arresting them with Ayahuasca and uh, and uh, threatening them with hard prison time. Um, uh, and looking at that, I went to visit a guy in prison, a, a, a healer from Peru in prison with Ayahuasca.
0: What a shame. Yeah. Yeah, all this is going on and they're, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> they're going to arrest somebody for... Uh... For healing mm. with uh, ayahuasca, what a shame! But well, I just want to say I really appreciate you coming here. All your links, all your social media, everything will be linked in the description. And um, man, thank you for coming out. I hope to see you again.
1: Thanks for taking the time. Great to be here, and yeah, great to talk to you and your new audience. Great to see this great, uh, great operation and talk about these issues.
0: Thank you. Cheers. Cheers,
1: man. Thank you. Too.
0: Today's show is sponsored by HelixSleep.com. Sleep, especially as you get older, is so critical, especially that deep, comforting sleep. Go to HelixSleep.com and take the sleep quiz. I took it and was matched with the Midnight Lux. Helix knows that everyone's unique, so they have several different mattress models to match based on your body type and sleep preferences. Once you match, your mattress comes right to your front door, shipped for free. When you receive your Helix mattress you'll be hooked. It's so easy to unbox and you won't believe how well you sleep. You'll wake up feeling rested and refreshed. Helix mattresses are fiberglass free and cradle your body for essential support in every sleeping position. They have a 10-year warranty and Helix even has financing options and flexible payment plans. So a great night's sleep is never far away. Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com SRS. That's helixsleep.com SRS. This is their best offer yet, and it's not going to last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now.